That would be like some ninjutsu that I've never seen before. I've never, I'm not even acquainted with that level of stealth. And the nice <laughs> thing about a podcast is they never really die, you know, like they go into hibernation maybe, but like hibernation's a good analogy because, you know, they just, what they do is they just crawl into the mountainside, they just burrow a nice hole, they get real fat before they go in and then, you know, they just close their eyes and they're just slumbering away peacefully dreaming until we can bring them out again. And that's what tonight is about actually. Exactly. I don't have any intro music for this, so I can't make it formal. I got no idea what I'm going to play for an intro yet. Good evening, everybody. I want to welcome you to Pop Culture Mass, the real first episode of Pop Culture Mass. After a three-year hiatus, we haven't been in action since 2018. Honestly, I was lacking the motivation, the vision, the direction for this podcast. I had no idea where I wanted to take it, but I'm joined tonight by a young gentleman, a brother from the Inner Circle podcast who helped me get this show back on the rails. His name is DJ. He is the host, half of the hosts, one of the two hosts of a podcast called The Untrained Eye. What's good tonight, DJ? What's good tonight, Jason? Uh, what's that? What's good is we got this thing back together. I feel like um, I feel like you gave me the kick in the pants I needed. What exactly was it that I said? Because I say a lot of things on my show yeah. and I don't think about them as I say them. So what was it that really drew your ire? So I got to credit your wife as well, who is also your co-host. That's Beth who's your co-host on Untrained Eye, I got to credit you both as a family. You guys really both over the last, and it wasn't just like one thing. I mean, I think you really pushed me over the edge with your last episode when you two were talking about Martin Scorsese. I believe it was during one of your trivia sessions, which typically caused me to burst a blood vessel in my eye when I'm, when I'm listening to your trivia because I'm like screaming at you so loudly in my car. My daughter's crying like wailing because daddy's just like screaming and I'm like pounding the dashboard. My knuckles are bleeding. And then the blood vessel in my eyeball just pops. So it was a, uh, it was nineties trivia like you guys do. And uh, of course, Martin Scorsese, he's the director of the film that we're going to be talking about extensively this evening. He is, uh, he will, he was very prolific during the nineties. He's prolific today, but, but the nineties were a wonderful decade for him. He turned out some really, really good work in the nineties. So naturally you guys are going to draw a, uh, a card that asks about some of his work that he did during the nineties. And so you guys talked a little bit about Martin Scorsese during that time. And, um, that combined with some of the other interactions I've had with Beth really is what kind of set me off on like, this is what I want to do with this podcast. You guys, it's pop culture mass. So it's, there's like a religious theme, right? Mass is like the Catholic, um, religious ceremony typically conducted on Sunday, but who knows these Catholics, they do Ash Wednesday, they do them Saturdays. I don't know. So the, the thing is you guys, I don't remember exactly what you said about, about Martin Scorsese, but 
it seemed very clear to me that you had never seen the motion picture Goodfellas. Is that true? So I'm, I may have seen it at one point. I do recall, I don't know if I actually saw it or if I saw like a clip of somebody cutting garlic with a razor or something. Yeah. And they're like, I cut it thin. Yeah. Like that's all I truly remember of that yeah. movie. There is, there <laughs> is a scene where they're cutting the garlic really thin. Really, the guy's like shaving the garlic with a razor blade, like you'd use to shave your beard, which clearly you never do. Um, but he's like shaving the, the the garlic down, and they're talking about how it shaves so thin that it liquefies in the pan, that it just turns into it just the essence of garlic just all throughout the food. And and so yeah, that's a, like a that's a very memorable scene. And uh, when I heard that you said you'd never seen. Goodfellas, I knew, like, this is the direction for the show. This is really what this show needs to be about, because what do religious people do, right? They proselytize. For you dum-dums listening, that means they show up on your doorstep, they ring your doorbell, they're wearing the uh, button-up white t-shirts with the collar and the little black tie and the, the short sleeves, and they got them all tucked in, and they park their little bike out on your sidewalk, and they ask you if you got time to talk about everybody's Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And you just think, how the fuck am I going to get rid of these people? Why did I answer the door? Damn it. Proselytization is a major component of a lot of world religions, not all of them. Like I said, my my the, the Jews that I admire so much, they don't bother with that bullshit. It's one of the reasons I admire them. They're like, I don't, I don't got to talk in any, anybody into worshiping my shit. But uh, In fact, so, rebuke you three times. You will not. You will not be one of us. I think. <laughs> I think that is, and it's it's the beautiful thing. It's almost a better way of doing it because Jehovah's Witnesses show up at my door. I'm like, fuck. You guys got to fuck off. I don't want you here. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to join your wacky cuckoo cult. Get the fuck out. Just please get the fuck out. And um, I think maybe they do a better job by saying, hey, we got a club and it's pretty cool. Uh, we got like a really great brisket and. You know, like we know how to party and you are not, not welcome to join the club. So then I'd be like, Hey, I kind of want in the club. Actually, now that you mention it, you say that you say that you don't want me here and I can't join. Oh, fuck. I really want to join now. <laughs> so I just knew that this podcast, you know, I had done something similar with Watsky, as you might be aware with the Bond films. I was shocked to learn a year and a half ago or whatever that he'd never seen a Bond film in his life which is surprising to me because they're such popular films and there's like 30 of them. Uh, well, listen, I, w I do want to just say in my own defense for uh, probably what made me or made you angry about <laughs> what I was saying about Martin Scorsese is, or Scorsese uh, is my whole beef with him is it wasn't he didn't he just get quoted as saying that like superhero movies aren't real movies. Yeah. I think that's, that's what you that's where you took umbrage with with his uh my thing is is like listen fine you don't like it cool martin do your own cool weird thing that you do where you de-age yeah. all the actors that you know you can't stop using for some reason and you know how hard it is to be a director of a movie that actually gets made and makes it to theaters and yeah. then do that multiple times and then you're going to like smack those guys down like hey maybe this is just the stepping stone to the next thing yeah these hero movie directors when in any art form film among them uh it doesn't matter what art form it is you've got the people that um produce 
things that are maybe not super artistic, but are very popular, like, uh, you know, like pop music, right? Like think of whatever's popular on the radio these days, like Dua Lipa or something like that. It's not that anyone thinks that she's producing high art. It's that, um, what she does is very popular and it gets a lot of radio plays and airtime and everybody's heard the songs. Even if you don't know who Dua Lipa is, I played that one levitate song for my wife like a while back a couple weeks ago and she's like i don't know who the fuck do a leap is and i was like you'll you'll know her as soon as i hit play and i hit play and she's like oh yeah 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 i've heard this because it's everywhere like even walking through a store you're gonna hear this shit and so you know i i, I see where martin scorsese was going with that comment i think you know like your response to that comment is very valid and, and i think that a lot of artists that aren't making the popular stuff they do tend to be maybe a little bit more pretentious about their art. You know what I mean? And if you're, if you're, um, I went to art school. Okay. So you know that I got a, I have an art degree with a specialty in digital media. And I drew, when I first started, I really wanted to draw comic books. That was like the thing that I wanted to do with my life when I was like 16, 17. So I drew a lot of like graphic art that looked like comic book style. So like if I was drawing, um, a figure if there was a dude there that day and he was making a pose like i would draw him in that style you know what i mean i didn't draw him with like superman tights on or whatever but i mean i would draw i would you know like the graphic like that the, just the way you represent it even the the media that i used i would choose like pen and ink because that looked more like a comic book you know because that's what i wanted to draw and i got shit on a lot actually to be honest with you i got shit on a lot by instructors and and um you know, the people at the school that were like the big wigs because they would look at the art and they're like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Okay. You know, whatever. It's, you know, it was too pop artish and they should have been sucking my dick and calling me the next Andy Warhol because that's what he did. But regardless, they kind of beat that out of you, even though, I don't know, maybe you can make a better living doing pop art and drawing things like that nowadays but so i think martin scorsese was being a little he is guilty of being a little pretentious there i don't think you were wrong well and pretentious is one thing but like i feel like he was he had the reaction of like a an indie director that wasn't good but thought that he was better than he was mm -hmm. like art scorsese he's had his time in the sun yeah and now he it's to do whatever he wants into infinity and into obscurity if he so chooses. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm just like, all right, well, if you want to just, if you want to just wash over, uh, uh, the thing that is popular right now, because you yeah. happen to not like it, then okay. You're irrelevant, Martin. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that I would call him irrelevant. I, I mean, I think the Irishman did pretty big business and, uh, it's been released by criterion collection as well as Netflix. It got, a ton of um it got a ton of plays on netflix and then it did it performed pretty well uh in the you know the um the film festivals where he entered it you know that's where you go to enter your prestigious you know snooty movie uh so like i you know i i see i definitely see where you're coming from because i enjoy marvel movies as you know i've got all of the steel books over there on my shelf i can look at them from where i'm at and so you know i enjoy the marvel films as much as the next guy and, uh, I, you know, I think maybe he is, he does have that sense of pretension. Like you compared him to like an indie director. I mean, he sort of is, I mean, he directs for big studios. I mean, he makes, he makes big movies, but it's because he's been making films since the 1970s, the early 1970s. So 
you know, he's got decades of, and he's been pretty well praised throughout his career. So like if you spend 45 years doing something, and it's especially if you, you're doing something artistic for 45 years and the critics of your art are more or less continuously kissing your ass and telling you what a great job you've done with some exceptions. I mean, he doesn't, they're not all universally praised, but most of the time he's looked at as a director who's contributed a really large body of work over a really long period of time, which is why he gets to do whatever the fuck he wants to today, you know? And then I think maybe that also affects his psychology a little bit too, because now like in terms of his career, Marvel movies are like Johnny come lately. They just came on, on the scene. And now they're making all the money and billions of dollars. And I, I think, I, I think maybe what he should have said is that he laments that cinema is moving away from, cause I think he said cinema. It's not that they're not movies. They're not cinema, which is like, that's the, the art version. Like you got, they're both movies, but like the artistic movie is considered cinema. And the, the movie with the superhero is not, it doesn't elevate to that sublime level. And so but art is subjective though. Well, like 100%. Is, so to say that it's like it's not cinema yeah. again is like it's this thing of I don't know if this is a hundred percent true now, but I know I feel like uh, if you look at uh, Bob Dylan, like Bob Dylan, if you if he wanted to, he could be like people like the you know the white stripes and the black keys, like they aren't music. What I did was music. What these guys yeah. are doing is just a pop version of what I you know laid the groundwork for. But rather than that, he was like, I'm just going to continue to make the music I want to make. My fans like the music that I make, and I'm just going to keep doing that for as long as I possibly can. Whereas, like, you know, again, you can't make people uh, act in what I guess what you think is the correct way. But that's what I would have wanted for old Martin. Yeah, I think I definitely think he misspoke. Like, I think you've got a good point. And what you just said was that art is subjective. I took, when I took, uh, when I majored in art, I had to take four semesters of art history, one of which was modern art history. This was art of the 20th century mostly. And as you know, art of the 20th century became very avant-garde, looked a lot like the shit on the wall behind me, right? And a lot of the students in the class were very critical of art like that. In fact, one of my roommates who was not a student in the class, but we lived together. So he would see like my textbooks and what I was studying. If it was open on the table or something, and he'd be like, what the fuck is that? Like you're studying art history, but that's like a piece of garbage. I could do that. And so his, his thesis, my, my roommates was that that wasn't art because it required very little skill. And the stuff that required a lot of skill was trying to reproduce a, like a portrait with the photorealistic detail where you're going to get like the colors properly and all of the, the, the proportions of the facial facial features and stuff like that looked almost like it would fool the eye. They had a, they have a term in French called Trump Leoil and that's fool the eye so that if you saw it real quickly in a, in a well-lit gallery, you might think it was like a photograph for a second until you got to inspect it a little bit better. And so it takes a lot more like he, the way he viewed it is like, that's the other stuff. The modern stuff wasn't real art, but then you had people who would admire Picasso and be like, what are you talking about? This is real art. But my roommate Ross would be like, this is garbage. I could, I could draw Picasso. I don't know how Picasso is so famous. And so it's the, it's the, the problem that you mentioned that 
art is relatively subjective, but then how do how do critics form a consensus on artwork? Like what's good and what like why do we talk about Picasso? Why do we know who Picasso is? You know what I mean? He's been dead for like 40 years or 50 years or something. I don't know. It's like it's the difference between the tomato rating and the audience rating. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can have the, the critics say that, you know, Pablo Picasso is the, the greatest artist that ever was. And a consensus of all the critics agree that, you know, him cutting off his ear or whatever was the greatest decision he ever made. And it helped his art and yada, yada, was whatever. Van Gogh. Was it Van Gogh? Van Gogh cut off part of his ear and mailed it to a prostitute. He was dating. He thought he was, was dating. It? She was boning him for money. And he was like, in love or some shit cut off part of his ear and sent it to a prostitute he uh he died like i don't know he died like 60 years before picasso did shot himself in the chest van gogh shot himself in the chest you want to talk about pussy i mean at least kurt cobain did it the fast way van gogh shoots himself in the chest right lives for like another like i don't know 12 13 hours they lay him up in bed he's in rural france and it's like it's like 18 80 something right so it's not like they can rush him to a modern day hospital his brother goes out to see him they have like a whole last conversation throughout the night then the guy fucking croaks the next day don't kill yourself but if you're gonna kill yourself don't kill yourself like van gogh i mean listen here is here is one through line between uh mostly all great art uh is crazy yeah. like crazy runs deep genius in some greatest art yeah yeah because there is that thin line between genius and crazy so like you you mentioned the i think what you you did a great analogy here particularly for a podcast about movies and that's comparing the the tomato meter with the audience rating so like what do you got what are the critics what is the critics consensus and then how do you compare that to the way the audience responds to a film and i see that as like the critics are trying to talk about the maybe the more artistic kind of qualities of a film they're deconstructing it as film experts and then the audience they are they're not worried about that they're just going in to enjoy the film they want to watch a film that that uh entertains them and and really when they're leaving the the theater and they're evaluating whether or not that was a good movie and they want to add you know the audience score or whatever they're really evaluating like how entertaining was this film personally and you can do this too. You, you, the listener, not you, DJ, but you, DJ, as well. But you, the listener. I mean, I usually look at the critic score and the audience score, and kind of the critic score is telling me like the artistic merits of the film, if I'm interested in that kind of thing. And then the audience score is telling me how much the average human being liked the movie, and and so they both have some value, I think. I mean, I think the the lesson that we learn from what Martin Scorsese has to say compared to how damned well the Marvel movies have sold over the last 12 years is that audiences love the, the uh, Marvel movies. MCU has made gajillion dollars for Disney in the last decade or so. And then, um, you know, you have uh, films that even today Martin Scorsese is making that are very like, there's like high artistic value, but they're not selling like a Marvel movie. But there is value to that. Like there, like that. You need that. You need the Pablo Picassos, and you also need the guy that duct taped a banana to a wall. Yeah, you know what I mean. 
it's it's all necessary because you need you need the highest form of it but you also need the lowest deconstruction of it and there can be a middle ground where superhero movies or romance mm-hmm. movies or time travel movies or whatever exist like a lot of them are nonsense and they don't exist in reality but it's it's part of the whole thing and yeah. to to to, to point at one one of those things and be like eh that's not that's not actually part of it like yeah. relax <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if he was i don't know if he was trying to defend what it is that he does what it is that he produces i don't know if maybe he was trying to dissuade people from going to see mcu films by saying that they're not to true artistic cinema i'm not sure what he meant like what what the words were supposed to like the intention I don't know because it seems like you're never going to talk to people how to go and see Marvel movies. These billion people are like, oh, what are you going to do? Like you're going to fly over China and tell a billion Chinese people not to go see these movies. I mean, they're everybody in the world goes to see these movies at this point in time. So I can't imagine that Martin Scorsese would think that he can, he can proclaim that, that Marvel movies and other similar stuff. I mean, I like to think he's also considering Transformers and Fast and Furious franchises and this this version of franchise filmmaking. And and he does have a point in that it does kind of become soulless over time. And I may be referring more towards the the Fast and Furious stuff versus uh, like the Marvel stuff, which I think has retained a good bit. Of, I think one of the the highest achievements of the MCU is that they've retained a level of quality across so many films i don't think any other franchise in the history of man can put out 20 movies 21 movies and for them to be all very i mean even the worst one is way better than like a lot of the other shit that's out there well so th- the the crazy thing too is <clears throat> to say it like that is uh, when he put out goodfellas like how many at, at what point in time or when, when did he put that out and what did the landscape of yeah. mob movies look like? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like his was one, his happened to be one of the, like the, uh, what the quintessential mob movies yeah. to see, but <clears throat> it was in a sea of mob movies. So, so many mob movies, uh, that what was the, what was that one with, uh, Leslie Nielsen that they made? It was called like mafia or something that was supposed to be like the spoof movie. Yeah. Because, something like that. Yeah, like it it got to a point to where like it was so ridiculous that everyone was making a mob movie yeah. that they were like all right it's time to spoof this. Yeah. So he was part of it, but instead of it being part of like a franchise thing, it was just something everyone knew about that yeah. he just had a version of that he wanted to tell. I don't know, did he just direct it or did he write it too? So he was involved in the writing. I'm I'm glad you steered us back to Goodfellas because Goodfellas is a film that I specifically want to discuss this evening and um because you've never seen it, the structure of the show, I think, moving forward, at least for, for shows where there's a guest. You're my first guest on the show, by the way. So a very, very special position in the pantheon of, of pop culture mass is bestowed upon you this evening. Um, on top of the fact that you're going to get a producer credit for like helping me relaunch this thing. But the, um, the, the Goodfellas came out in 1990. Um, Martin Scorsese directed the film. He was involved in writing. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's a powerful director. He's a man like Quentin Tarantino who can do what he wants, do what the hell he wants. And studios do not, 
uh, try to influence Martin Scorsese. They don't say, you need to put this kind of car in because they're paying us or Pepsi's giving us money, so make sure they're all drinking Coors Light or something. He doesn't bow to that type of bullshit. He makes the films he wants to make. People don't tell him, you need to make The Departed PG-13 because if you actually (laughs) shoot Leonardo DiCaprio in the face, we can't market it to 16-year-old girls that might like Leonardo DiCaprio. He says, I don't give a fuck. Leo is getting shot in the face at the end of that movie, which is what happens. So he does what he wants to do, and that's to his benefit in the same way that Quentin Tarantino doing what he wants to do is to his benefit. But um, because he has so much control, he does wind up writing parts of the film. He's got control over it. But the film was based on a true story. It was based on a book that was released in 1985 by Nicholas Pileggi. It was named Wise Guy, which was the original name for the Goodfellas film. It was just going to be called Wise Guys, like the book. However, there was a television show that came out between the release of the book and the release of Goodfellas that was named Wise Guys and was similar in feel. It had like a mob theme to it. So Scorsese decided he didn't want the film to be associated with the television show and for people to be confused that he's making like a film version of that TV property. So he distanced himself from the wise guy's name smartly, and he he went with Goodfellas, which is similar. You can probably agree, wise guys, Goodfellas. I mean, it's a pack of dudes doing their thing, the mafia guys. And I think Goodfellas was a much better choice in the name, but but that could also be the fact that I love the movie. Now, Wise Guys is not a good name. Wise Guys, yeah. Wise Guys was the name of the book. Again, the book is based on the life of a mob associate named Henry Hill. He's the main character of the film. The The film purports to be very true to life. It, it sticks very close to Henry Hill's story, although there is, in recent decades, there has been a lot of speculation that maybe Henry Hill did not represent events and himself as truthfully as he could have, which makes a lot of sense. At the time when he's writing his life story, he he, he co-wrote the book with Nicholas Pileggi, but it was mostly Nicholas Pileggi interviewing him to get the stories to write the book. So we got to give Nicholas Pileggi a lot of the writing credit for, for the story at least, but uh, there's some contention that maybe Henry Hill made himself sound a little bit better than he was, like made himself sound more important within the mob organization, and that also maybe he didn't report some of the more heinous shit he did so if you're going to tell your life story, you're going to say, I was involved in this heist, I was involved in that heist. You're not going to say, I shot a 15-year-old Hispanic kid in the face, and I didn't even feel bad. I mean, you're not going to tell the really, uh, the stuff that makes Deep you dark. seem, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you're not going to rat yourself out, and you're not going to tell the really ugly, like kind of less justifiable shit that you did. The The, the purpose of the first quarter to a third of this podcast is to speak to someone like you. I mentioned proselytization at the beginning. So the idea is that I want to find people like yourself who have never seen a film or probably never seen a film. I want to talk to you about the movie, kind of like what your impressions are, like this pre-chat. I don't want to give away any of the story. And then the idea is that you'll watch the film, we'll reconvene, and then we'll discuss kind of what you thought about it. And so I like the fact that you're sort of going into the movie already like, I don't know about this Martin Scorsese guy, right? Maybe he shouldn't be flapping his gums so much these days. Maybe he should do like in the movie Goodfellas and learn to keep his mouth shut. You know what I'm saying? I like that you're going to, you're going to go into it sort of, we're going to see how much you like the film despite, despite 
disagreeing with with what Martin Scorsese said, and maybe even viewing him as a little bit pretentious. So I like that. I like that idea. And I think so, that you're going to like the movie. Well, and even on a deeper level, like I am a, an Italian person myself. Yes. So I have a special kind of disdain for these kinds of movies because like that is – I mean, it's the closest I will ever come to experiencing any kind of racism of just like when people hear my name, they're like, hey, what's the matter you? And I'm just like, yeah. So whenever there is something like this, they're like, "Eh, of course you like that. I'm like, Like, I I almost have to not like it because you assume that I do. (laughs) I see. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that there's even there's a brief scene in this film where Joe Pesci mentions. prejudice against Italian Americans. His diatribe is more played for laughs. Like I find myself laughing while he's, he's discussing, he's like, can you believe a Jew brought prejudice against Italians in this day and age? Can you believe a Jew brought is prejudice against Italians? It's really, I actually should probably just cut in him actually doing it instead of me doing him doing it. Cause it'll sound better coming out of his mouth. But, but there's a point in the film and it's, it's just pure comedy based on like Ray Liotta's uh, who plays Henry Hill, his, his reaction is like, you're an idiot and sort of, so it's, it's, it's this, um, th- there is a little bit of commentary on that, but not much, but I can see how people would say, oh, you're Italian. So you, you must, you know, like, how's your chicken Parmesan? You want to watch Sopranos? What's going on? Yeah. So I, I can understand that. I mean, this film is in very, uh, a lot of ways a a precursor to Sopranos. And I think Sopranos owes a lot of its existence to Goodfellas. Have you seen Sopranos? So I have started the first season of Sopranos no less than three times. Wow. I make it a little further each time, (laughs) but I just, I can't, I feel like if I could get past the first season, I could make it all the way through, but I just, I I just can't do it. I agree. I I think if you made it to the end, I think the, the first season of the Sopranos, much like a lot of television shows, during the first season, they're trying to find their feet. They want to find their flavor. Like, is this going to be more comedic or are we going to go more serious? How are we going to balance the different elements? And what what type of story are we really trying to tell? And I think that by the end of the first season, the way the first season ends, I'll, I will say, I was just like, holy shit. Like, they didn't have me fully on board either until I got to the very end of the first season. And then I was like, all right, I'm all I'm I'm all in. Uh, this is this is what I'm talking about. This is a good show. I'm not going to be able to stop watching this until it's done. And I've seen it three times. I think I think uh, my wife is actually talking about us doing a fourth, at least for me, run through the the Sopranos television series. And it's definitely worth for, it every few years to revisit. Say, is that for uh, the movie that's coming out? sooner than later I think. yeah she doesn't even know about that because she doesn't keep up with that kind of thing but uh that will be like one of those films that we have to go see i'm not a huge mob film guy i'm I, for me mob films are hit or miss i will say that uh, it, you'd be safe assuming that i liked mob films because of how much i love goodfellas like i think goodfellas is possibly one of my top three films of all time but i don't think that it's because it it focuses so uh, so much on like the mob lifestyle because I don't tend to glorify that. And I think that's something that I want to uh, prepare you for this film, um, not by giving anything away, but by saying that the first half of the film and then the last half of the film are stylistically very different. And so I just want to draw your attention to that as you're watching it because 
Martin Scorsese does that on purpose. And I think the really great thing about Goodfellas, at least the first viewing on, on the first go through, the, the really great thing about Goodfellas is how he balances the comedy with the pathos and the drama and really just kind of like how that lifestyle really could be. And I think that's what Sopranos owes Goodfellas because nobody had done that before then. Before Goodfellas, mob movies were like The Godfather. And the the Don was this kind of romanticized Robin Hood-like character who, you know, you got to admit, you watch the first Godfather and these guys are dangerous mobsters, but you, you feel like Don Corleone is like, your nice grandpa, like you could kiss him on the hand and he's going to give you a nice present and he's going to pinch your cheek. And you know, like he doesn't seem like a threatening or a scary guy in the way that some of the other characters in the Godfather do. So you get, you get all of this romanticization of the, the mafia lifestyle that is piled on high in the first half of the movie. And he uses a specific filmmaking technique, freeze frame, and so you'll get these really well-done freeze frames. It looks like a photo album. But then you also have these like very smooth movements of the camera, long tracking shots where you follow characters through a space. And the the idea is that like it makes your head spin. It's almost intoxicating, this lifestyle. And that's exactly what he's trying to tell you with the filmmaking style is how this lifestyle attracts young people in, like Henry Hill, who they, they idolize these gangsters, not because they're violent or whatever, but it's because they've got this exterior that they put forward as almost like a marketing tactic, their cars, their clothes, the money, the women. And so young boys see this and they think, man, this is the way to go. I don't want to be a postman or a teacher like my dad. Fuck that. I want to be one of these guys. And so he piles that on in the first half and he uses filmmaking techniques that are specifically meant to woo you as an audience member. And he balances the comedy very well in the first half too. So the comedy has a special part. It's not just there to make you laugh. It's there to charm you a bit. Like these characters are sociopaths. The commentary that he's making is that these mafia, not just the characters of the film, but the mafia people in general, they're sociopaths, which means they can turn on this, this charm and this charisma most of the time. And they can make you like them initially. And that's how they get to loan you money. That's how they get you in. That's how they sell you things. That's how they take protection money from you. It's only when they've run out of that charisma, when that charisma reaches its natural ending, that they become more violent. And they, they that sociopath switch turns that they can go from being extremely charming people to being like breaking your knees and you don't even see it coming. And then the back half of that movie, he strips the comedy out. These people are not charming anymore. They're not people that you should look up to and you get to see first half of the film is beautiful exterior. The second half of the film is, is rotten core. And when I think the, the, the main purpose of the first part of this, of this episode for anybody who hasn't seen Goodfellas for the folks who have, hopefully you agree with me, but the analysis is there to just prepare you a little bit for what to expect stylistically and maybe to appreciate some of like the actual cinema that Martin Scorsese talks about. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to say he's right about the Marvel movies because I enjoy them too, but his films definitely, in my opinion, most of his films are really, really great, like actual works of art. I don't enjoy them all as much as I enjoy Goodfellas, but I think Goodfellas is, it's just so watchable. Some of the lines of dialogue are perfect. I mean, the actors he gets are perfect. He, um, he gives Joe Pesci an opportunity to, 
at the very near the very, very beginning of the film, he gives Joe Pesci an opportunity about 15 minutes of just complete. Uh, he's just making the shit up as he goes. It's total ad lib, total improv. And Joe Pesci was the only actor from this film to win an Academy Award. And he won an Academy Award based largely off his ability to just like be this guy. And it's pretty incredible. I think, you know, going into the film with some appreciation of that, I'm sorry for talking so long, but, but, uh, I, I just wanted to kind of outline the things that I want the listener as well as you to, to, uh, look for when you, when you see Goodfellas. Listen, I, I do understand that guys like Martin Scorsese and, uh, I don't know that like his, I don't know, graduating class of directors. Like they mm. built a lot of the foundation that any good director that we like nowadays, uh, they definitely just built, continued to build on what guys like him did. And I'm not taking that away from him at all. Uh, my, my only true beef with him is the idea of like, listen, you know, you're the foundation, yeah. like not many people get to be that. Uh, so, you know, be that, be that. Yeah. Continue to be that thing that, you yeah. know, these because by the way, all these guys that uh, that are that are doing their thing now, like that is going to be the foundation for the next uh, yeah. graduating class of directors that get to do whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah, I, I think he's definitely guilty of gatekeeping a little bit because he's the established guy with the fifty-year career, and he's the one with the name, the the accolades. He's the one who, I mean, he's already a legend in his own time, and you have a good point in that like maybe he shouldn't be gatekeeping. Maybe he shouldn't be trying to influence the the younger generation, you know, but he started making movies at roughly the same time as George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And they knew each other. They're not from the same wherever, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to the same schools, but they were making films in the seventies or getting started in the early to mid seventies. And obviously they all met with some great success, but Martin Scorsese took a more artistic path. He and uh, actually Spielberg did a little collaboration in the early 90s. Spielberg was supposed to direct Cape Fear, and he ended up swapping films with Scorsese. They were not excited about the film that they were like right about to do, and they were like, fuck this, and they had a meeting, and they are like, I'll give you Cape Fear if you give me whatever, and they just swapped movies. And so they they... These guys know each other. They work together, but you know what happened with Lucas and Spielberg. They've made some of the biggest films of all time. And Goodfellas made less than double its uh, budget at the in its original run. I don't know what it's made off DVD sales and home home media and 4K and stuff like that, but sure. it, it would cost uh, $25 million to make, and it made back $47 million. So it made just under double. And you know these days... 47 million? I mean, Jesus, the 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 next Marvel movie will make that much at one theater in in opening yeah. weekend. You know what I mean? It's so I mean, I don't know if it's um sour grapes on Scorsese's end, but I agree with you. He probably shouldn't be gatekeeping and trying to say, like, well, this isn't the real thing, and I know how to make the real thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, ah, come see my movies, you know, watch the Irishman instead of Endgame. When it could be like there's room for both. I've seen Endgame and The Irishman. I'll I'll watch any Marvel movie and I'll watch any Scorsese movie. That's I mean, I like them both. So it's like por qué no los dos? Like why can't I enjoy chocolate and vanilla? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. All things exactly. have their place. And I I I think that you're right, Deej. I, I hope that I hope that you'll be able to enjoy Goodfellas regardless of uh Martin Scorsese's 
harsh words against, I think he picked on Marvel too. And he probably shouldn't have, cause they've released really pretty quality films. If he had said like fast and furious or transformers, I think we could all agree that transformers is like, what are, what's going on? They've made six movies and they probably only should have made one maybe, mm-hmm. you know? So you know, it's that filmmaking that I, t- I talked about it in the most recent episode of creatures of the night, the, the mouse who sold the world. If you guys want to go back and listen to that, uh, I, I sort of share Martin Scorsese's concern about films as a, an investment, like a property. Like we were talking about flipping houses, you know, like a house can be an investment. If you buy property land developing, that can be an investment. You're expecting to make some return on your investment. You want to make money back. And so parking your money there is meant to help enrich you down the line. And that's how I think a lot of these franchise films are being made these days where these uh, investors will put money in. And that's how you finance a $100 million movie anyway. It's not coming out of one guy's pocket. You'll have several people who are putting in money, but they're hoping this $100 million film makes back $500 million or, or uh, $750 million or a billion if they're really lucky with some of these big franchises like Transformers and Marvel. And so I I can see how making a film as an investment caters to the lowest common denominator. They don't want to close anybody out. They, they want everyone in the world to buy a ticket. That includes everybody in China, which means we got to kiss the CCP's ass, which means we can't put this gay character in because the CCP has a really huge problem with uh, gays, unfortunately. But most Americans don't have a problem with gay characters, but the CCP does. So we got to take this character out and this character that was supposed to be Tibetan who could have been played by an Asian actor. We got to whitewash him and make him Celtic because the CCP has a problem with Tibetan characters and stuff. So, you know, it, it does wind up affecting the filmmaking, uh, for the creative individuals because they're given this set of rules that they have to follow so that the final product can be sold overseas, particularly in China. But I can see a filmmaker like Tarantino and like Martin Scorsese who have made their own films as passion projects. I can see they them objecting to, to that. They get to exist outside of that. And that's just like another reason why it's it seems crazy that he would. I know I'm making yeah. this more about him than the movie. Yeah. But like that again, that's why it seems crazy that he would be like, oh, well, I don't like like you get to do your own thing. You get to yeah. do whatever you, yeah. I, I, he gets I mean, to make a three hour movie, the Irishman where Robert De Niro plays a 30 year old for half the movie, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I, now, I listen, get you. If we found out that this was all in the context of like, he knows that he gets to do this. Uh, but the, the, uh, the rising stars of the artistic movie directors aren't going to be able to make the movies like he was able to when he was coming yeah. up. Now that I am well, I'm more on board with that, that version of the argument. There's a little bit of that though. I mean, that's the argument that I try to make in the mouse who sold the world is that it's not just the films that get sent to China that China has control over. China has uh, increasingly over the last decade attempted to exert more and more control over American films, even the ones that aren't showing over there via two ways. One They've bought controlling stakes in a lot of American and uh, Western filmmaking companies like Legendary Pictures, who made the um, the uh, the Batman's, the Nolan Batman films, and a lot of other movies that you've seen. They bought that film, or they bought that uh, production company. So now they're producing films that we're going to wind up seeing, and we're not going to necessarily know that they were produced by a Chinese company. And the second way they do it is by going to the 
big dogs at the top, Disney. Now, Disney doesn't just own Disney, right? They own Marvel, they own Lucasfilm, but they also own things like Buena Vista and Touchstone Pictures that people don't automatically associate with Disney. Touchstone Pictures was founded, I think, in the 80s to distribute films for Disney that were adult, that like could carry an R rating. And Mm -hmm. so the idea was that like they didn't want to say this is an R-rated movie from Disney, but if they had Touchstone Pictures, they could release R-rated movies and then they could have that wing of business. So the idea is that China is leaning on Disney and saying, well, we're not going to help you finance Mulan. You can't you can't uh, film it on location here in China and you can't show it here in China. So you're going to make way less money on your, your Avengers movie or your Mulan or all of the above. If you release this art house film made by this person, because he's friends with the Dalai Lama. So the idea is that like the, the, I think the part of what Martin Scorsese could be objecting to is that it's not just kiss my ass because I'm, the great Martin Scorsese, but it's also like, I don't like to see where this is going because it's going to limit options for audiences ultimately. And it's going to also um, stymie or hamstring the directors who maybe do want to, um, you know, explore human sexuality in a film, but can't because no one will finance it because they want that same studio wants uh, the Avengers 27 to get picked up in China. So, I mean, there's a very real, um, there's a very real threat, I think, to like the future of even independent filmmaking because of its connections to these big studios. I agree. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, let's take a break here and watch the uh, watch Goodfellas, and we'll be back, guys who are listening. I'm going to play the audio of the trailer for Goodfellas, and when that trailer ends. We'll be back. We will have seen the movie, and we're going to talk all about the movie. DJ, I, I don't, th- I don't expect you to like critically analyze it or anything. But if you, I'm just interested in like what you thought, and and pretty much that's it. How you liked it, what parts you liked, characters, whatever. You don't have to, you don't have to like research the film or watch it three times or anything. No in depth analysis. You don't have to go in depth. That's what I'm here for. So. I just want to hear like how you felt about it, what you know, what your impressions are now that you've seen it, that type of thing. I can dig it. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, we will be right back, everybody, and we will have magically seen the film in the next uh, two and a half minutes. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. I could go anywhere. I could do anything. I knew everybody, and everybody knew me. I was living in a fantasy. There was Jimmy and Tommy and me. (laughs) You're a funny guy. (laughs) I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. Then, I couldn't believe what happened. What if you had to go to prison? I know what I'm doing. Didn't you hear what I said? Don't buy anything. You're going to get us all pinched. What are you, stupid? Uh, What kind of people are these? Uh, Here's a leg. Here's a wing. (laughs) If you're part of a crew, nobody ever tells you that they're going to kill you. Worry too much. If we stay around here, we're dead. 
never rat on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut. We were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the asking. The way I saw it, I belong. So we're back, everybody. This is awesome. It's been like 16 years for us. We, I raised my daughter. I sent her off to college. Uh, it's been a long time coming for Deej to watch this episode. But for you guys listening, it's been mere seconds since we were talking about Goodfellas and, and DJ here had never seen it. But we're back. We're reconvening. And DJ has now seen the motion picture Goodfellas. Just give me like a quick... Thumbs up, thumbs down. What did you think about the film just to kind of get us started out in this back half? I would give it a thumbs up. Okay. I would so give it a one thumb up. Overall, it is a one thumb, but not a two thumber. Yeah, it's uh, no, it, I mean, yes, it is a two thumber. Uh, I mean, this all started because um, Martin Scorsese had some choice, choice words mm-hmm. about uh, the MCU. About, I guess. Well, yeah, in, in yeah. specifically the MCU, calling it like, because I actually found the interview where he talked about it, yeah. and he was like on the panel about the Irishman, and he was saying that, what was he, how exactly did he put it, about it was, <clears throat> he just said it wasn't cinema. Like he was talking about how it was, it was a, an amusement park ride, basically, yeah. is what that was. And it was, I don't know, I just disagree because of what this movie was and what his movies kind of are. Mm-hmm. They're not about mundane things. They're about <laughs> things that people don't <laughs> normally do. <laughs> and yeah. you're watching it because you are like, this is amazing. I can't yeah. believe this is actually happening, which is kind of the reason why you're watching Marvel movies. <laughs> yeah, actually that's a very good point. I think, you know, um, Martin Scorsese doesn't make art house films. Uh, I mean, he's not, Ingmar Bergman making uh, scenes from a marriage or something like that. I mean, his film is every bit as uh, salacious and we go to see at least for uh, several of his films, like casino, like the Irishman, like Goodfellas here that we're talking about today. So many of his films are like voyeuristic. Like we want to see because we have no idea what the mob life is like. We're enthralled by this true tale of mob life And we want this look in, this voyeuristic look in. And fundamentally, going to the cinemas for that type of experience, not a whole lot different than enjoying vicariously these adventures of superheroes. So that's actually a very valid point, in my opinion, even though I kind of get what Scorsese was saying. I mean, I think you have a point, too. And not for nothing, I got a whole I got a whole (laughs) shelf full of MCU steelbooks over here. So, you know, I'm. I'm someone who tries to stand on both, you know, in the middle somewhere with one leg in both worlds and and try to appreciate both offerings. You know what I mean? Well, what was funny too is in that same answer that he gave, he talked about how like what, what movies could be. And he said, Oh, a a movie could be a, it could be completely narrative driven and be one take. It could be a three hour, one take narrative driven movie, which sounds terribly boring but like his defense of that of his own movie mm-hmm. was to say that movies are also boring but they're also super hype uh which i just thought was yeah uh, it was just a weird well here's the thing though too about the whole i want to say the clip that i saw was like maybe seven minutes like 
he was on a panel talking about the Irishman, like yeah. up on a panel, like at a convention or something. And he was doing kind of what we do, which is just like someone asked him a question and he basically podcasted about it. Yeah. Because he got asked a question and he answered it for like basically that whole seven minutes. <laughs> he so answered for 45 like, minutes. But you know what I mean? Like how often are we as podcasters like, eh, you can't really hold us to what we say in the moment. We might change. Yeah. We might have a different idea, you know, by the next episode or whatever. So I, I don't necessarily like hate the guy for what he said, yeah. but as long as he's been doing it, like have a better answer. I yeah, think. I, I can appreciate that. I mean, I know we touched on this topic in the first half of the show talking about Martin Scorsese's actual words and, and sort of like, uh, his opinion on current films and given his age and how long he's been in the industry, it's, I guess it's kind of natural that he sees things evolve over the course of decades. And, uh, you know, I think it's normal to look back and think, man, they don't make them like they used to. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm maybe half of Martin Scorsese's age and I still feel the same way about stuff because I'm getting to that point where, stuff is different you're i mean you're a few years younger than me but you're not so much you're not like a plunger let's put it that way so you're not like a riley's age kind of guy who just looks at me like i don't know what you're talking about like i can't relate i feel like you can relate to things were a certain way when you were younger and you liked them and uh sometimes they change sometimes those things change and evolve and grow and you don't always like what they become sometimes you do like what they become but other times it's like well i like this thing better 20 years ago and i find myself saying that i try not to hate like if there's something that i don't like today i just kind of stop doing it or consuming it or whatever but but uh i can understand why why scorsese is lamenting the the kind of big uh, like box office transformation of films. I mean, I think more so than gatekeeping and saying something like, well, these movies aren't real cinema because they're paint by numbers and cookie cutter and they're all flash and CG and there's no art to them. They're just built on computers by men in Taiwan. And so I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that as much because they're still plenty enjoyable. I mean, and they make plenty of money, and that's ultimately what movie studios are trying to do. Even the studio Warner Brothers that put out Goodfellas was trying to make a buck. They wouldn't have put out Goodfellas if they thought they were going to lose money on it. So the idea is that it is a business, and I, I can appreciate what he's trying to say, but I think, I mean, I think what he's really lamenting is that as these movies get bigger and bigger and movies become more and more expensive i'm sure you remember when you could go see a saturday matinee for like five bucks maybe tops i remember the 90s did you go see movies in the 90s for sure i was the king of like oh it's saturday we're gonna go when the theater opens and then we're just going to uh buy tits all day long see everything that's playing over the course of a summer five movies <laughs> in one day is my max that's the top where my buddy Jimmy and I, R.I.P. Jimmy, he and I went to the movie theater and we um we went to the very first. I mean, if they opened at eleven thirty on a on a the first show was eleven thirty on a Saturday afternoon. We were there till midnight Saturday night, and we squeezed in five movies. And uh, man, I miss those days. They crack down on you more these days. Me and my wife, I finally talked my wife into sneaking into a movie one time. I was like, let's do a double feature. And me, when I whenever I say let's do a double feature, that means let's let's buy a ticket for one and sneak into another. 
And I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. And we're like walking in, and I guess they hadn't sold any tickets because we walk into the second one that we're like sneaking into, and it's fucking empty. And I'm guessing they hadn't, it was like Ted 2 or something terrible. So I'm guessing they hadn't sold any tickets, and they see two people walking in, and they're thinking, mm, we didn't sell any tickets that motherfucker. What are these two doing? And they're like, hey, did you guys buy tickets? And I was like, head for the exit. And we just like walked out. And they're like, guys, wait. And weird. I was like, don't look back. They, they're not allowed to, uh, to touch you. Just keep walking. Just pretend like this was the side of the theater our car was on, and we're just walking straight out the exit, and we just fucking bounced. And my wife was, for me, that was like normal operating. I was like, oh, that was fine. I didn't have to swing on anybody when they grabbed my shoulder. So everything's cool. My wife was like, oh, my God, I'm traumatized. Like, I'm never doing that again. I was like, fuck. I mean, it it's worked out for me for 20 years, and then the the one time it doesn't, my wife is with me, and now she refuses to sneak into movies. Not that we even go see one movie anymore, but I mean, I think what Martin Scorsese is lamenting is movie tickets are $15 now, and and if you order them on Fandango, you got to pay the $3 convenience fee or whatever. So me and my wife go see a movie, Spider-Man or whatever, and it's $30, $32 a head just for the tickets on a Saturday evening. And I mean, that's 4.30 in the afternoon. We're not going to see late movies because we got a two-year-old. And my wife is pregnant with another one. So we're going to see like a 430 movie and it's still $15 for this stupid regal theater with the seats that like recline. And but I would um, say though, the to say that though, is this like, if he is going to go that route, which I don't know that he would, but if he did, uh, I would say, Hey, did you have any, uh, any thought at all to the up and coming directors that had their great ideas with their great movies, whether it was whatever kind of movie it was when you were on top and you were getting top dollar to make your movies and you were paying whatever top yeah. dollar was to go see a movie in the movie theaters was Martin Scorsese worried about the, the up and coming director or the, you know, just the popcorn movie theater or, uh, amusement park director like no he wasn't worried about crushing those dudes into oblivion no uh and now that he has reached the other side of that that hill as it were like it's it's a thing too of like he is a guy that rightfully so but maybe too much so like who around him besides his maybe his inner circle is telling him that uh is telling him anything other than dude you are great you're the greatest that's ever lived anyone who thinks anything less is ridiculous uh everything you touch you have the midas touch when it comes to film like i'm not saying it's not true i'm not saying that he doesn't make because this movie was great it was a fantastic movie like i uh, it's weird to me that I never, now I know why everyone is like, why did you never see this movie? Yeah. Cause it's, it's a great movie. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think you probably have a point there when, you know, when you're on top and when you're, I mean, for sure, Martin Scorsese these days, I mean, anything he makes is gonna, it's going to get prestige. Even if it doesn't sell, it's not going to move tickets the way an Avengers movie would. There's, there's a, a new paradigm set by the MCU in terms of just moving tickets and getting asses in seats because there are tons of people like, you know, you could take a 13 year old to go see Iron Man, but I'm not sure how much a 13 year old is going to get out of, um, Goodfellas or, or even the Irishman might even be worse because, uh, have you seen the Irishman yet? 
I have not. I am. I don't know if I'm uh, ready for a four hour epic. It's well, it's, I think it's only like three, maybe three hours and 15, but I had to chop it up. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get through it all in one go because it's long, but uh, it's another one where, um, you know, I think what, uh, honestly, I kind of lament the same thing. Martin Scorsese does I, as much as I love the big, um, spectacle films like the MCU and other similar kind of big budget, kind of big, huge tentpole films. I kind of miss those little gems too. Like I kind of miss going to a movie because it was $5 and it was cheap. You could take a risk on it and there was no streaming at home. There was no red box. So you really like you could go rent it at Blockbuster when it came out if it didn't look that interesting to you. But at the same time, $5 for a matinee was the same price you were going to pay to rent the VHS from Blockbuster anyway. So I kind of miss those days where a little movie would come out. And granted, Goodfellas was not a little movie. In 1990, when it came out, Martin Scorsese was already, for, for already like 15, 15, 16, 17 years, he was already a prestigious director with a name for himself. Oh. He'd built a name for himself. He was, but I actually was listening to a podcast about about Goodfellas, and mm. I, I didn't realize this, that he, the last movie he made before this one was The Last Temptation of Christ, Yeah, and people were really like, nope. They were yeah. very much noping Martin Scorsese, and were like, I don't yeah. know if we're ever going to let you do this again. Yeah. So this was, I mean, it wasn't, but it was, I guess, kind of a gamble because every, there was a big portion of people that hated this dude. So it kind of is awesome that this movie was as great and, you know, uh, iconic as it was for him. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting because I just figured he was like, since taxi driver on, he was just always considered best of the best. So that was interesting. I don't think he has skirted a few times. He's like brushed with controversy and I think that's something that rightfully so gets him respect in film because he is, um, you know, he's going to make the film that he wants to make. Uh, and, and there are going to be like rough edges to the films. And The Last Temptation of Christ was one of those, it was like Kundun. I mean, Kundun made waves more so in Asia, but but uh, Last Temptation of Christ, I mean, Scorsese being Catholic, you know, and, and, and his religious upbringing being such a big part of his life prior to that, then he makes this religious epic that I, I really think honestly I I saw it I, I actually own a copy on Criterion Collection over here and when I watched it I, of course I was I'd already heard about the controversy and everything I didn't really think it was that bad I didn't see why people got their panties in a bunch you know it was a little bit of a different look at Jesus but it's still like it wasn't like he was doing rails off a of hooker's asses or anything like that it wasn't like total <laughs> sacrilege it was just kind of like he made him a little bit more human maybe than like the religious folk, especially the Catholics tend to want to see him. And I don't know. I didn't think it was that bad, but I, I do understand that the Goodfellas was a bit of a, like an uptick for him. It was a, a small comeback. I mean, it wasn't a huge comeback, but it was a little bit of a return to his uh, ability to, to not only produce something that was like artistically valid, like last temptation of Christ is extremely artistically um, um, like valuable and valid, but like Goodfellas also has an appeal that I think is kind of like a pop appeal. It's like, um, it's like a really good song that is not only technically very good and artistically very valid, but it, it's also something that, uh, is very entertaining as well. And that's, I think why I love Goodfellas and a lot of Martin Scorsese's work. Like there's a lot of art in it, 
but it's still fun to watch. There's a lot of art house films. There's a lot of movies that I could recommend you sit down and watch that if you start watching it after like 8 p.m., there's no way you're going to get through it. You're just going to fall asleep because it's dull. It's slow moving. It's, um, you know, it's not exactly watching paint dry, but there's a lot of art house films out there that they don't keep you on the edge of their seat. And what I'll say for Goodfellas and a lot of Martin Scorsese's other work is that it is both extraordinarily entertaining very hard to look away from the screen, very easy to get sucked in and get pulled into the world, the narrative, the actors. I mean, he does a great job of picking every element and then setting up this, putting everything together to create this, this, this picture. But, um, you know, there's, there's artistic merit there too. Like he, he, he is experimental. He does have that long tracking shot. I think I mentioned in the first half where, that uh, the shot when he takes Karen out on a date it was one of their early dates and he takes Karen out and they park across the street from the club. The camera follows them across the street and they don't go in the front door. They go in through the side door and they go down, they go through the kitchen and he's, he's waving at everybody, he's saying hi, he's greasing a few wheels, handing out a few $20 bills. And it kind of follows him through this labyrinth and then up and to the very front of the show, they put down a, a special table for him and they get them seated. And it's like this VIP treatment, but it's still kind of, he comes up from underneath me. He has to walk through the kitchen. So it's kind of weird. He, he has this VIP treatment, but then the, the shot is like three, four, five minutes long. And it's been imitated many times since then including in the film Spectre, the James Bond film Spectre, they it used another long tracking shot where, I mean, it's technically very incredible to be able to do that. I mean, you, if you fuck that up, let's put it this way. If you get four minutes into a five minute tracking shot and you fuck it up, you pump into something and the camera's like, does the camera does this number. You've got to start that motherfucker from the beginning and reshoot those four minutes. Cause it's continuous. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's really wonderful like artistic moments like that, but then you balance it with somebody like Joe Pesci's performance. And, you know, like when he's on the screen, it's like, what the fuck is he going to do next? I love it. So um, I guess tell me more about um, why you responded well to the film. Uh, what elements of the film were there that like you said, I kind of dig this. I like this. I mean, listen, Right from the very beginning, like, what do they say? Like, you need a good opening line. Yeah. You know, and it's like a a tale of two cities. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like he's ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a gangster. Hold on. I got something for that. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I had to pull yeah. a few of my favorite lines and put them on my board before we did this. So, yeah, that's I mean, what a great opening line, right? And then, but then that is the thing. It's like, that's why I enjoyed this movie because without having to thread the needle like a Marvel movie does, as far as like fitting itself into that like tapestry of, you know, 25 plus movies, um, it is a thing that uh, it it keeps you, it keeps you that you said it, like it keeps your attention the whole way through. Like there is no point where I was like, all right, I can hurry up and like go get a drink or something. I'm like, yeah. no, I have to, I have to watch this. Even if I pause, it kind of ruins it. Yeah. Like I need to be able to just sit down and watch this movie the entire way through. Um, and you're, I don't know, like you, 
it, it, I don't know if it, it's a, like a classic anti-hero story, but it's like a thing where you're like, this is not a good person. Like, yeah. You should not. There is at no point where he does even anything remotely good. <laughs> uh, there's no point where he like saves an orphan or some shit like that. Like he doesn't like run in front of a bus and get the kid out of the way and die tragically. It's, um, it's not a, you know, there are a lot of movies like that. You know, um, Iron Man dies heroically at the end of Endgame. Spoiler alert for a three-year-old movie. But, but um, you know, there's a lot of films where that's like the dramatic moment. Our hero does his final heroic act, and he, it, you know, there's this loud orchestral music behind him, and it's like this rising symphony, and he sees I am Iron Man. He snaps, but then he's dead. And it's like this big heroic moment, and it's like what the character's arc has been building to this whole time but on the other hand that's very manipulative right i mean it's it's like they use the music they use the cinematography they pause everything maybe cut the music for his line before he snaps and it's all like wrought in a certain way it's like you're on a roller coaster but there's a track to the roller coaster right you know where it's headed they're moving you through this up and then down and they're letting gravity take you and it's all very thrilling but it's like it's it's on this set track there's this set kind of they've they've crafted this thing to give you that experience and i think with with goodfellas you, you don't get that i mean i'm not even sure these guys are anti-heroes they're he gives us i think a pretty realistic portrayal of what these people are like and um they're not good people but they're still so hard to look away from they're they're like the most interesting people that you could fathom and yet you wouldn't want to get within miles of these people because they're all so volatile and violent and uh they'll go from laughing and playing cards with you one moment to stabbing you in the back of the head with an ice pick the next and chopping your body up and, and dumping you in the ocean i mean it's just um like they're they're so amoral. And he does such a good job of capturing this in the film. I may have mentioned this in the first half, so I apologize to our listeners. It has been 12 and a half years since the first half, so I don't remember perfectly what I said. But in the first half, I may have mentioned the the movie is constructed differently as he goes. He uses slightly different film language in the first half of the film versus the last half because the first half Henry is young and he's idealistic and he just wants nothing more than to be included into the mob. And he's looking back on his life in voiceover and he's telling us about his initial experiences and he's using a lot of freeze frames. There's that image where, you know, he's as he's coming up into the mob as a kid and he's lighting those cars on fire and he's talking about how he had everything. They were giving him more money than he could spend and he got all this respect from the other kids. And as he's doing that voiceover, they show him, you know, bashing out the windows of the cars and dumping the gas in and then he lights the match and he goes running and boom, the cars explode behind him. He's got his arms up so that he's a silhouette and it's just such a striking image. It's a beautifully uh, photographed image and then freeze frame and you just get this instant of him like that and it he uses these freeze frames several times. That's one of the more notable ones, but he uses several freeze frames and it's almost like looking through a photo album, right? But it's his memories. But then by the end of the film, 
it's completely different film language. He's paranoid. He's strung out on drugs. This life that he's chosen for himself is going down the toilet. His own friends are probably plotting his murder. He's got the FBI, the DEA, whoever else to worry about. He's looking out his window at helicopters, nearly having, uh, nearly rear-ending people, having a wreck. He's he's poor in sweat. He's pale as shit. And it's obvious that everything is unraveling. There's no freeze frames. There's no beautiful Tony Bennett music in the background. There's no wistful reminiscing about how he was being respected and everyone was taken care of. The, the whole thing is a beautiful facade. And that's exactly what Scorsese's trying to tell us is that this mob lifestyle, it looks appealing because when you meet the guys, they got the flashy suits, they got money, they got a nice car, they got women. Nobody talks shit to them because they're afraid of them. But the end of that life, what nobody saw in the 1950s and 1960s, when you meet a flashy gangster, what you didn't see was the end of that life and how that wound up for people. And I thought that was the most incredible part. And that's why these people had to be antiheroes, like you said. That's why they had to be scumbags. Well, two things I'll say. One, I feel like the uh, maybe this was just because I I noticed it hard. Like I feel like the turn from one side of the movie to the other was going from being like the idealistic, you know, freeze frames to like everything was headed downhill mm-hmm. was right after Tommy, I think it was, killed uh bats and then he he talks to Polly, uh he ends up talking to Polly and Polly asks him if he knows anything about it. And he mm. says, no. And we all know, of course, that he absolutely knows. And he's like, uh, you know, basically they're reassuring each other that we're still good. We're still, we're still cool. If we find out anything, we'll let each other know. Yeah. And hilariously, something that came back around what year did, what year did Goodfellas come out? 90. 90. What? I think it's, I what think was it was 90. Yeah. So what? 90, 2000, 31 years later, there was a TikTok app and some, some young Martin Scorsese did the thing where, you know, have you ever seen on TikTok where they have like something bad is about to happen and that song plays? Oh no. Oh no. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at exactly af- the scene, the next scene after he reassures Polly, he doesn't know anything about Billy Bats. Yeah. Uh, it goes to like wherever that wherever they are, like a restaurant or whatever it is, and that song is playing. That's ridiculous. Like, yeah, that is amazing. That's intentional. I, yeah, of yeah. course. And it's it, it, to me that was like okay, we're on the we're on the back half now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I, I this is all going downhill. Yeah, that's a pivotal moment. I mean, the the murder of Billy Bats is so important that the movie actually opens with them driving along they're going out it's after they've eaten dinner with um tommy's mom and they're driving out to find the spot to bury the body and they realize he's still alive in the trunk because they hear him banging around so then this is the very cold open of the film right they're driving along and they're saying what the fuck is what is that sound what the fuck is that and as the viewer you don't know because you haven't seen the scene yet and it's a wonderful use of like pulling this one moment out and showing it to you just to give you like here's the taste of what this movie is up front pull over and then they open the trunk and there he is and you don't know it's billy bats yet as the viewer because it's the very beginning of the movie. You don't, I mean, you haven't seen anything leading up to this. You're like, why are these three guys got a guy in the trunk? Holy shit. They shoot him, they stab him. And, and then, you know, Henry Hill slams a trunk and delivers his line that I just played a moment ago. And it, it's, it's such a rousing open. I cannot see that scene and not sit there for the next two and a half hours and watch the rest. Cause it just, it just, 
I don't know why my spirit swells every time Billy Bats gets stabbed to death by Tommy uh, DeSimone. And I just, I don't fuck. Every time I see it, I'm like, yes. Like it's, I don't know. I I should not celebrate Billy Bats' death like that. But you're right in that it was extremely pivotal. It was an important moment. And I think that's why Scorsese built the opening around that scene to highlight it and to say, this is an important moment. I'm showing it to you in advance, not only because it's kind of a thrilling moment that's going to pull you into the narrative because you've got questions about what's going on, but you're also titillated by the the murder of the guy in the trunk. And the opening line is so cleverly delivered, but it does. He's like with a highlighter. He's kind of saying, this is the important moment. This is the moment where the whole, the, the reality of the lifestyle starts to set in for uh, the main character, Henry. There's He's realizing that, you know, the murders can be spur of the moment spontaneous like this. It's not just because you got out of line. I mean, yeah, Billy Bats kind of asked for it. I mean, I well, guess Tommy, he could have. Tommy's ridiculous anyway, although it's, I'm not going to lie, when he shot that kid, Mm-hmm. uh <laughs> yeah popped off at, i was like yeah i mean you kind of deserved it spider and yeah. then yeah. spiders <laughs> go go fuck yourself tommy and I, you know who really did it though the, robert de niro is the one who started like immediately like he he was like whoa he starts pouring gas on the fire he's like here this one's for you he's like throwing a hundred dollar bill down like tipping spider like what and then he goes to joe pesci he's like you're gonna let him talk to you like that and that's where joe pesci you know lights him up and it's like you had to know when you're egging on joe pesci like you know he actually robert Niro is like you shot the guy and he's like you're gonna dig the fucking hole this time. You're gonna get the shovel. I don't have a shovel. You're gonna get the shovel. You're gonna dig the fucking hole. Is you and you know Joe Pesci's all like, you don't ever think I dug a hole? I dug a fucking hole. I go dig the fucking hole right now. I don't give a fuck. But but and they're quibbling like they're almost like an old married couple. But um but he's like, you know, I mean, you've been working for years with Tommy's character. Now you gotta know this guy's volatile and he doesn't take a joke. You can't bust that guy's balls. You can't tell him to go fuck himself. He's not going to laugh that off. He's going to come back and murder you later. So that was the, I mean, and, and, and Joe Pesci deservedly. So won an Academy award for that film. And listen, he, he should have won that for sure. Like, I don't think I could not imagine anyone doing even near as good a job as any of these people in this movie. Yeah. But, one of the other things that I heard that actually made this movie make a little more sense is like, I did not realize, but in that movie, uh, Tommy was supposed to be like 30 and Joe Pesci was like 47 at the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. So because that whole scene with Billy Bats kind of, I didn't, I was, I went with it because that was the dialogue when he was like, Oh, I used to shine my shoes. I'm like, you guys are almost the same age. So you were 15 and he was 12 and he used to shine your shoes. Yeah. yeah no, I, that's kind of it. But, but knowing that kind of made it make more sense, but it didn't matter to me, honestly, because I couldn't imagine uh, real. It's weird. Cause the only person that seemed good, but kind of out of place in that movie, I thought was Robert De Niro. I think his, I think his character could, I'm not saying Robert De Niro wasn't great. Yeah. But what I am saying is I think you could have got, you could have fit someone else into that role and it would have been fine. Yeah. I think that that became like the quintessential Robert De Niro. Like, I don't know about his movies before that. And he made several and I've seen many of them that he made before that. And, and I think there was a little bit of that in the, um, well, taxi, taxi driver, driver one of them. Yeah, yeah well yeah and, and that was another one directed by scorsese 
So, you know, um, there was the, like, are you talking to me kind of thing? But I feel like even in Taxi Driver, he wasn't leaning into that, like, um, Italian-American identity quite as much. I mean, with the punk rock look and the mohawk towards the end, he was more doing, like, the tough New Yorker thing and more like the disaffected, disenfranchised youth, whereas by the time Goodfellas rolls around, you know, De Niro himself is a little bit older, and he's playing this character that's not going to shave his head into a mohawk. I mean, he would look at that type of guy and be like, fuck is wrong with you? You know, why you got a fucking mohawk? But but he's still got that kind of stone face, like, fuck do you want from me? You know what I mean? He's always got that look like... Something fucking in this room smells. I don't know. Is this some old food or something? This fucking, I don't know what this is, but particularly the back half of the movie. He smiles a little bit more in the first half, but in the back half, he's kind of become this like uh, miserable old, like miserly old kind of uh, a Scrooge-like old man. He's just kind of like, these underguns I want, you know what I mean? He's like, he's always got that look on his face. Like, what the, who the fuck farted, man? And uh, <laughs> it's, it is like this look like, uh, you know, he's always got the eyes and the, nose is scrunched up and his mouth is down and um i love it it's it's like the robert de niro movie for me it's like i think of robert de niro i think of goodfellas like i can't help it but i think he may have gotten nominated i know pesci is the only one who actually won an academy award but i think several of them were nominated and and um goodfellas itself was nominated for best film i think scorsese was nominated for best uh director and they all should have won Unfortunately, Dances with Wolves came out the same year. And see, that's a movie I've never seen. What was Kevin Costner that much more spectacular as dances no. No. than uh, Ray Liotta was? No, it's it's uh, it's hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, it's one of those things where I think Dances with Wolves played a little bit better right out of the gate. Cause it's one of these, it's one of these fancy movies. It's a, it's another three hour long Epic. It's a prestige film, but it's more like a Forrest Gump type of movie. It's like, watch this guy. He's like this white savior for these Indian people. He's going to go in and there, he's going to assimilate and become one of them, but he's going to be like the most important one. And it's sort of like a little bit, like you look back at it now and you're like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's definitely not racist. I wouldn't call it racist, but it's like, all right, like the white guy becomes the leader of the Indians because he's the white hero guy. I don't really see any other reason. Like he's not like he's better at throwing a tomahawk and he's certainly not more like ethnically Native American. So I don't get it, but but he's also a good character. I mean, he 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 loves the Indians for good reasons and he leaves the white society for good reasons, but it's one of these movies where it's like um I don't know. It's like Braveheart or, or something like that, where it's like really emotionally manipulative. You're like, ah, oh, these like, you know, every bad character is like putting cigarettes out on young children's foreheads while they're like signing the murder notice for the, for the, um, the native Americans. Like there's no gray area, right? At least with a movie like Goodfellas, there's a lot of nuance to these characters. Like these characters can really be quite charming at times. And that's why they draw us in. They're not just ugly, but you wouldn't want to watch a, three-hour movie that was just about the bad guys from dances with wolves because they just make them like a caricature of bad guys so like they're bad guys so yeah. the, everything they do has to be bad like they're gonna they're gonna like roll out of bed and then like shit on their partner's head before they even have breakfast and then 
they're going to like kill a Native American on their way to breakfast, just run them right over and say, don't stop. He's a red skin and just keep going. And it's like, they just have to make them these like horrible characters so that the audience will be like, oh, I hate that guy. So that when they get killed in the end, we're like, yay, we're watching the bad guy die. Look, he's got a tomahawk right in his neck and it's spurting blood and he's suffering in his final moments. And we're going to enjoy it because he was a cocksucker the whole time. So there's, there's none of that yeah, in you Goodfellas. Don't be, you don't have to be in amazing dances. Uh, I don't know his name in that movie. Yeah. Uh, to to that I like, that's literally what the terrible. that's literally <laughs> the name they give him. So like I don't I don't remember his white person name. Like he had a Christian name or whatever. But when he gets adopted with the uh, when the Indians adopt him, it's because they first encountered him. He'd like he'd like thrown some food to some wolves over time, and he'd like kind of domesticated these wolves because he was stationed out on the plane or whatever. And so they saw him playing with the wolves. And so the Indian name they gave him was Dances with Wolves. That's literally the fucking dude's name. So yeah, Dances is like 100% spot on. You haven't even seen the movie, you know. Well, and that's what I think is good about this movie, Goodfellas, is like it clearly, uh, because even when like James Gunn was talking about like his disappointment about um, what, what he is, what Martin Scorsese had said about Marvel mm-hmm. movies, uh, he still what what people glossed over that James Gunn said in his little quote on that podcast or whatever is that he's like I will respect. He's like I respect and study uh, all of his all of Martin Scorsese's movies. He's still one of my top directors of all time, and I will continue to do that. Uh, but I just disagree with this one this one statement yeah. that he made. Yeah. And I mean, you could see like this movie weirdly, not until we started talking, reminds me of the TV show. Did you ever see that show, The Shield? Yeah, I saw most what? of the seasons. I didn't. I was actually thinking about that earlier today. I was like, man, I never saw the last season of that motherfucking Shield. And so listen, without giving full spoilers to it, like The Shield ends a lot like this movie. Yeah. Like you, you see this guy be a bad guy for however many seasons, and you're like, well, he's going to get what he deserves. And he does, but not in the way that you would imagine it. The same way that, uh, why is his name escaping? Henry Hill. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the same way that he just is, uh, lives a life of mundanity or whatever you say it. Yeah. Like he's just, that's his whole thing is he, he goes, walks out, gets his newspaper, sees the lawn being watered and is just like, yeah, like <laughs> I'm just yeah. here. Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of, the the arc of Vic Mackey in the Shield, which you know I think is you got a great argument for <laughs> that the 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 writers of the Shield were like they studied at the feet of this movie. I think a lot of folks do, and I mean, if I put myself in the shoes of someone like James Gunn, who um, you know is a very talented filmmaker, and I'm making films for Marvel, that sounds like a dream job because you're going to get paid out the fucking ass and you're really making quite a fun film. And and as I understand it, you're going to have a lot of artistic control over the film that you make. And sure, it's going to be a summertime popcorn flick. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a certain age, then you probably grew up watching Martin Scorsese films. And if you knew you wanted to be a director in your teens, then you probably idolized the guy. Cause it probably was about 1990 or 1995 that you're like this young 20 year old and, and, um, you know, for him to then come out and say that your work is basically, it's like, it's okay. And they made a boatload of money, but it's not a movie. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you're going to feel like you're wearing a, a, a McDonald's apron and you're like, 
Oh, Gordon Ramsay just called my like uh, he just called my product shit. Like he doesn't like does Gordon Ramsay ever eat McDonald's? Do you think Gordon Ramsay ever is just like fuck? No one's looking. I'm gonna put on like a hat and a mask because it's COVID time, and I'm just gonna sneak in and get like a Big Mac. If he does eat McDonald's, he doesn't complain about it because he's at McDonald's. Yeah, like you're you 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 can't be a gourmet chef and go into McDonald's and be like, this is not the 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 finest cut of prime beef. Like, yeah, it's not up to you. if you don't like it. It's not up to you to be like, well, then no one should like it. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, not everyone is going to be able to see your artisanal, uh, you know, dry rub yeah. ribeye you've been aging for. 25 years yeah, it's like, in a um, woodshed. You know, Mc, McDonald's probably has a place. Like uh, your five-year-old will probably eat the chicken nuggets. And when you're on a 10-hour road trip, there's one on the side of the road. And so, like, um, there's a place for McDonald's. Just like, you know, there's a place for, like, grass-fed, organic, you know, bison burgers that are, like, handcrafted. Like, they shot the bison in the face that morning and, like, carved it out with uh dances with wolves tomahawk and shit and like put together this this fine crafted homemade burger for you and it's like yeah sure I, that's all well and good but you know you sometimes you just want to eat sometimes you just want to eat like junk food sometimes you just want like a roller dog from the fucking qt right i mean and that's okay too like marvel doesn't have to aspire to be high art because like should they make all the money and be like the, the biggest, the, the best art too? like, at least, you know, you might not make all the money, but at least the art films are going to be, that's, that's the art. And you know, it's not for well, everybody. It gives you what, what I don't think people see in the long run, like big picture of all this is, is like, it gives, it gives so much more room for uh, directors that maybe couldn't get into theaters to make stuff and put it on YouTube. Like I just saw a 15 minute indie film, a horror indie film that it's called the other side of the box. And I, it was one of the best, you know, quote unquote horror movies I've seen in a long time. And it was 15 minutes. Nobody got their head ripped off. Uh, It was, it was a great, movie or whatever short film and who knows like the guy that or the whoever directed that maybe maybe they will be in 10 more years uh directing big budget horror movies or whatever the next thing is but like it's not going to be this way forever the same way i'm sure that it seemed like for a long time like all we were going to get was goodfellas and the casino and the godfather and you know whatever stupid mob movie there was yeah like, people got sick of that yeah. there's always going to be something people are getting sick of when <laughs> and for sure anytime something is particularly successful there's going to be a line of people a whole line of people waiting to cash in and make the next one so like i i feel the martin scorsese complaint that there's a lot of superhero movies these days there's a lot but that's like it's been ramping up for a long time. I mean, MCU has been around since 08. And before that you had Batman begins and, and the dark Knight, And before that you had the X-Men trilogy. And so for like the last 20 plus years, almost 25 years, the superhero movies have been like ramping up. They've been more and more ubiquitous, more and more of these things are getting released. And it probably coincides with improvements in, um, special effects and, and like, digital filmmaking where you can now make a convincing um, 
superhero film where like uh i don't know they got like special powers and they can do you know shit and fly around and all this stuff where it looks realistic enough maybe in the 80s you really couldn't pull that off with the kind of budgets they had but you know um i i think like yeah there's a lot of that and i get a little fatigued but it makes sense too because avengers endgame makes like i don't know how many billion of dollars and people are like yes let's keep green lighting this we want to keep making these let's make another six sign tom holland up for three more spider-mans let's keep churning these things out because right now people are buying them and if you don't think that happened after goodfellas you know, if you don't think there were a bunch of shitty mob movies that came out after the godfather was a tremendous success and then slowed down in the 80s because they realized everything else was kind of like Ugh, this is shitty it's imitation same thing with goodfellas comes back every time you make a good mob movie somebody else comes back and says oh let's make this other thing we're gonna cast richard grieco in a fucking movie about uh prohibition era mobsters and it's just it turns out to be a piece of shit because it's an imitation but but um i mean i think what you said is valid because martin scorsese makes a movie like goodfellas and and you got dozens of people who are going to come out with something after well and nowadays too you can't you're not going to have uh the same i guess like scarcity of talent you know what i mean like you look at something like you know people make fun of tiktok but it i doubt that when they made that little oh no 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 whatever tiktok thing like the the child that made that just heard the song and was like this would be funny yeah. so let me do this and people don't want to see that as like a valid way of like oh that that little kid that did that the first time he also could be the next martin scorsese in yeah. another 20 years uh and we just tell we we are since we are so like lousy with content right now i feel like it seems like everything kind of gets lost in the the sauce of it all but it's going to shake itself out because at the end of the day like people like what is good like you can say like oh well this this is just like tentpole movies and amusement park whatever but like if it wasn't good if it at its core wasn't even a little good people would not stand for it and so while this movie is definitely good in a completely different way like i don't think that takes away from what's happening now or what's going to happen in the next 20 years because it's not going to be marvel forever for yeah, sure for sure and and I, I i think you've got a point i mean i think the point with like um social media stuff and like memes i think people look at that as a little different than what they look at martin scorsese or even the directors that make marvel movies where um like the, the the viral shit when a meme goes viral and they use that oh no thing and now it's like it's all over it's i mean it's been used hundreds of thousands you say it's been used in a million different tiktok videos over the last two or three years i mean i've seen dozens alone and i don't even go looking um but like people think of that as like you've won like the lottery like anybody can go in and buy a lot of ticket and a few lucky sons of bitches are gonna win and a few lucky sons of bitches are gonna win it really big but that doesn't mean that they're more talented than the than me because I lost the lotto. But you look at somebody like Martin Scorsese and you think, oh, all right, well, this is a talent. He's got a talent like like LeBron James has for basketball, right? It's something inborn that then he nurtured through a lot of time and effort, and he created this mastery of this thing. And and it's like you don't get mad at at Martin Scorsese for being an incredible filmmaker because you're like he's just fucking i mean this is his thing obviously but like uh 
you know, if it's when it comes to something else, like you said, we're lousy with content. There's just so much that we're also lousy with like really good uh, talent right now too. It yeah. does get lost in the in the sea of all the content, but we do have very good talent happening right now as well. And I think that kind of gets glossed over. That like, I mean, if they're even though. I, I would imagine someone I could hear someone saying, well, he came by about his talent. Honestly, he, you know, started writing whatever and then decided to get a little eight millimeter camera and did it yeah. like this is the new version of coming about it. Honestly, like yeah. if you can stand out in this pack of people that are they don't they not only are all trying, but they're able to get their attempt out there and you yeah. have to stand out that i think you know i think there's always been a lot of talent right but i think maybe decades ago before digital media you know before you had a a 4k video camera in your in your pocket at all times it was difficult i mean it it it, it required resources that maybe you'd have a talented person out there but they just didn't have the resources to produce something and they didn't know anybody that did and they didn't they couldn't raise money. I mean, this is how people made independent films in the eighties. That's how the Coen brothers got their start. They literally just went to family and friends and they pitched their idea for a movie and they got everybody to throw in a little bit. And then they took that big wad of money. It was a GoFundMe 20 years before GoFundMe was anything. And, and that's exactly what they did, but not everybody can do that. Not everybody would have family and friends that would be willing to give them a dime some people are just like, well, it, it sucks to be me, but I can't find a camera in 1988 and make a movie, even though maybe that person is incredibly talented. I think these days it, we, we might have landed, we might have overshot the talent pool because everybody that's talented now has access to one of these. Even if you bought one of these used for $200 from three years ago, it's still a better camera than anything you could have afforded 15 20 years ago and um you know if you've got a good idea for something entertaining it may not look like an mcu film but you can still put together something pretty entertaining you can edit it on a 200 laptop with software that came included and you can upload it to youtube for free just like you were saying you can make a 15 minute film short film and put it up on a youtube channel and uh it's the same thing we're dealing with as podcasters too right i mean 20 years ago 30 years ago if you heard somebody's voice, chances were it wasn't on the internet. It was coming down through the radio waves, but there was a really short selection. You really only had a few. There were a few stations, and if you didn't like this guy, you didn't like that lady, and you didn't like the third guy, you were just kind of shit out of luck. There was no iHeartRadio where you could listen to like this the jock you do like in Milwaukee at 7 a.m. I mean, there's just there's so many options now. There's so many options, and now that you've got the smartphones, I mean, anybody with one of these can make a podcast in about five minutes. And I think that does kind of affect quality though, right? I mean, something like Goodfellas could not have been made on a shoestring budget 30 years ago, but but Martin Scorsese did it and it was good, but that's because he had resources, right? Well, yes, yes. He eventually had those resources, but like what you were saying made me think like, it's kind of sad now to think that like the Spike Lee's and Kevin Smith's of right now probably are just lost in the waves and waves mm -hmm. of YouTube videos that have come out because I mean, listen, both of those guys could have easily been someone that was like, okay, well I have my phone here in the year 2015. Yeah. Uh, I want to make this, I want to make this a little, little movie called clerks or do the right thing. And uh, then it just, 
is a YouTube sensation and never really makes it off the ground. And yeah. We don't know who these guys are now. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is, I think it is just the luck too, because by the way, we are just getting to this. What we are getting to see with social media is just that version of like what you and I remember as like sending in demo tapes or mm. sending in scripts to like a whatever, yeah. instead of like one person with a pile of scripts, that's like, well, I'll just pick up this one script and if it's good, I'll pass it along. And if it's not, I'll throw it in the trash. Like now that's YouTube. Yeah. It's like, we, we have to sift through all the garbage to find the, the one diamond in the rough every now and again. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what you said a moment ago rings true for me is that, um, you know, the cream doesn't always rise to the top. Like I, you know, I like to think that, you know, in a marketplace of ideas that the best stories that are the most compelling and the best crafted put together with the best acting and the best, um, cinematography and photography, all that somebody could do with, uh, unpaid volunteers and, and a couple of cell phones and some free software, I would like to think that that product winds up being the best 15-minute short film that you've seen in years. I would like to think that that rises to the top because of its quality, that people see it, they tell somebody, they tell a few people, they send a link, they share on on their Facebook or wherever else, Twitter, and then that thing eventually like accumulates like a, a snowball rolling downhill in the Looney Tunes cartoon. Like it gets more views and then that places it higher in the YouTube algorithm. And then YouTube starts showing it to random people and they love it. So more and more people and it snowballs into this big thing. But also like I got a two and a half year old and I've watched more blippy in the last week than I care to admit. And I don't know if you're familiar with blippy if you don't have you don't have a three-year-old so you probably have no idea the idea that youtube is solely a marketplace for people with talent is like really uh really shattered that um notion for me having a child and then getting like when the child eventually started getting into youtube the type of stuff that my child would elect to watch over good stuff i mean there's children's content out there that is really smart and well-produced. There's one that's been recently coming out called Masha and the bear. Masha and the bear is on Netflix. They also show there's a couple TV stations that'll show it too. And it's for kids. And I've watched it with my daughter and it is so incredibly entertaining. Like I cannot say good enough things about Masha and the bear, like fuck toy story, fuck Pixar. Masha and the bear is so good like as an adult watching with your child like the child loves it because you know there's a lot of like visual there's stuff going on in comedy and slapstick and stuff but like as an adult too like there's stuff there for you and it's it, honestly it's better than the pixar stuff in my opinion they're like short they're like 15 minute episodes it's like looney tunes where they're like just these quick things but Masha and the bear is like really good. But my kid is like, nah, I don't want to watch Masha and the bear. I'm like, please let's watch. Like I'm begging her to watch Masha and the bear. Cause it's fucking good. <laughs> but she's like, no, let's watch blippy. And when you watch blippy, what you realize is this guy, first of all, my wife is like, Hey, blippy's engaged. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, don't tell me any news about blippy unless it's him getting run over by a fucking train. Cause I don't give a fuck about this man's life. When you see the guy, He's got this blonde supermodel looking fiance, right? And she's holding this ring. Diamond is huge. He is just your most average looking five foot eight schlubby. There's just nothing. He's like so average in every respect, like just 
completely middle of the road, like doesn't have a beard, but he's not clean shaven. He's got like a day of stubble. (laughs) Yeah. And he looks like he doesn't even look cool. It's not like one of these guys, Oh, he's got a lot of money. So he goes and gets his hair done and he has this cool beard and he has this, you know, like cool. He looks like a total fucking dweeb. He looks like, I don't even know. He looks like he should be an accountant somewhere making $42,000 a year. I don't know, but, but he looks like this you just look at him and you look at her and they're standing next together and they're like, we're engaged. And I'm sorry. I'm not a very, I don't consider myself to be a very cynical person overall, but there are a few things where I am quite cynical. And when you have a like six foot fucking Norwegian blonde with blue eyes and she is phenomenally gorgeous and she's like hanging on you and showing this giant diamond ring and you are like the most mundane milk toast cracker motherfucker i've ever laid eyes on i'm sitting here thinking well it's probably because you've got about a billion youtube videos and views and shit like that and the ring is fucking huge so uh conspicuous consumption here she's clearly with you because you got that blippy money she's not with you because you got that blippy dick She's not with you because you're balling. You're fucking blippy. If you're dating a basketball player as a chick, you can sit on the sidelines with fucking courtside seats and you can cheer that guy on as he's like dunking on motherfuckers and he's like making all the fucking plays and you can be like, that's my man's. I'm going to go home and he's going to fuck me tonight. And you know what? (laughs) If I was a chick, that's what I would want from my life. But this is fucking blippy. I dare you to go watch a blippy video any fucking monkey could be trained to do that job any but that, fucking dancing chimpanzee and that's the thing blippy is the martin scorsese of toddlers like yeah and, toddler, and your kid will your child will as an adult be like i miss blippy yeah I, yeah I, Go back and watch Blippy. My most favorite, my most coveted memories were of watching Blippy with yeah. my papa. She'll, she'll, yeah, she'll say, you know, I used to sit on the couch with dad. I barely remember it. I used to sit on the couch with dad as he bitched about Blippy. He'd fucking groan the whole time. But I remember, but yeah, but nostalgia is one of those things. I'm sure I'm nostalgic about some shit from my childhood. My dad's like fucking Transformers. That was the dumbest shit I ever watched you watch. But, um, you know, like, I don't know, maybe Blippy is, I, I think I'm trying to compare Blippy to like, he's like the fast and the furious of top for toddlers, but it's not like Masha and the bear is like, that's the good fellas for toddlers. Like it's so good, but people still choose to go watch this thing. That's like sort of this mass produced thing. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I wish the cream rose to the top, but like when I watch a Blippy video, I think it's not a good idea. It's not like he thought of this thing that no one ever thought of before and he just invented this thing because I'm pretty sure Mr. Rogers beat him to the punch by like 40 fucking years and he's not even, it's not like he's more talented than Mr. Rogers. It's not like, yeah, basketball existed before LeBron came around, but LeBron's just fucking that good at it that it doesn't matter that he's maybe not the guy who invented the basketball, but he's just fucking like, he's, he's incredible. So it's not even like that. Like if you're going to be late to the game, you better be fucking good at it. And if you're going to suck at the game, you better be the guy making the, the fucking rules and making the game up. But if you're neither, then your name is blippy. He didn't come up with a good idea. He didn't, he didn't, it's not like he's doing something better than any other, like Barney, the dinosaur or any other thing. He's just, I don't fucking know. He made a deal with Satan. I don't get it because his shit 
it entertains toddlers. I mean, he figured out the formula. And what happens is parents legit, like if I need to cook dinner, if I need to pack my daughter's breakfast in the morning and my wife is not up yet because it's her turn to sleep in, you better believe like Blippy is a tool in my arsenal. And if I need that kid to sit down and shut the fuck up for like 20 minutes while I get her lunch together and find her coat and all this other shit, do Blippy does the fucking job. But that's the only reason why I allow him in the house. And I don't do, I don't know. It's just, I watch this shit and, and, and there must be a million parents every day doing the same thing. Just sit your kid down in front of Blippy for 15 minutes while I put dinner on the table and then we can all eat and we'll not think about Blippy again until tomorrow when we really, really need the kid to shut up and sit down for 15 minutes while I do something with fire in the kitchen that I don't want her playing with sticking her hand in. So that's how Blippy gets a gajillion views because there's a bunch of parents saying, sit down and watch this, shut up. It's not any good, but just sit down, shut up, and watch this. Stick your pacifier in, and then the algorithm starts churning them out. The, the YouTube algorithm thinks, oh, yeah, they like this. Let's keep, let's keep recommending more of this stuff, and Blippy just rides this fucking wave to the top, and it's not because he's good, and I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm comparing Blippy to, to Marvel to the MCU, but I do sometimes feel like a popcorn film no, in Blippi, general. Blippy would for sure be the DC universe, but go yeah. on. Well, except for the Joker. <laughs> the Blippy is like the first Suicide Squad movie, I guess. I don't know. But uh but but I think it's like the difference in 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 the films is like um you could sit there and you can watch an action movie. I'm not just saying MCU, any of the Transformers films by Michael Bay or any of the Fast and Furious movies, and you just kind of sit there and turn your brain off. Like like my kid watching, I got to do the profile so you can see the, you can see the horrible posture, but it's like this. But at least with the MCU, they're like trying to do a thing. Like Transformer, like I feel like yeah. that is the difference between what's going on with the MCU and what, what all came before it and during it is like everything before it was like, they like the first one and we sure do like selling these new transformers toys. So let's make as many more as we can. Yeah. Uh, let's make all of these. Re- I don't know what they're getting from uh, fast and the furious movies. It must just be what they get at the box office. Cause it, uh, do they have like toys. stock in Mitsubishi eclipses or something? Cause <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they get, they get kickbacks from all the rice burners. They're like, Oh shit. Tokyo drift came out and almost bankrupted Honda. I mean, fuck. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they're, if they're like, you know, they don't have fast and furious happy meals, do they? They don't have Goodfellas happy meals either though. And I think there's something like there's, there's something to be said about the art of, you know, does this movie exist because they want to sell a bunch of merchandise? Like I think the star Wars, I think the only reason why they made new star Wars movies in the nineties, they made the prequel trilogy. Then recently they made the sequel trilogy. And the reason they make the movies is to sell the merchandise and and uh fucking mel brooks knew it in the 80s when he made Spaceballs because he fucking exactly. made fun of it and he was so ahead of his time even though it was already happening then with the first star wars trilogy there was tons of toys and action figures and blah 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 fucking breakfast cereals but when i see that when i see robert downey jr as iron man on every t-shirt on on fucking uh onesie pajamas for toddlers and shit it's like you wonder if they made a movie that became popular and then they decided to 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 capitalize on that popularity or maybe they did that at first i think the first iron man 
I think the first couple of MCU movies were a little bit more artistically like they they want to make just a good cinema and they they want to make good films and they want people to enjoy the movies. And then I think on the back end, the last maybe eight or so years, it has been about like we've got this machine now and we're allowed to print as much money as we want if we just we get fucking lunch boxes and the fucking action figures and the fucking a summer's eve douche that's captain marvel flavor and everything else that's like they're making more money in one day off of the merch than they do for the entire theatrical run of the avengers endgame film and you wonder if they maybe they started out with good intentions but they're perpetuating this thing so that they can keep the the checks rolling in because why wouldn't you i mean if well, i exactly. if i found if i found a slot machine Every time I pulled the thing, it was broken or something. I don't know. Every time I pulled it, it spit money out. And I would keep pulling that thing until it quit spitting money out. I would just stand there like, fuck, I found the magic slot machine in this Vegas casino. Because most of the time, you don't get shit. This one's broken or something. Every time I pull it, I fucking win. I'm going to stand right there. And if my wife says, hey, it's time for bed, I'm going to say, hell no, it isn't. I'm standing right here. I'm not going to go anywhere for a fucking week. (laughs) Well, and you look you look at like, I feel like directors like James Gunn and Taika Waititi, they could, those two, especially I feel like have the potential to be like the next generation of like your Quentin Tarantino's and Scorsese's that could have had a different career where they were just like, we're going to make these weird movies and people are going to let us make the movie. We want the movies that we want to make into oblivion. Uh, But then they Marvel came and was like, listen, we're going to let you do that, but it's just going to look like Guardians of the Galaxy and Hulk in space or whatever, and we're going to pay you so much money. And now they are just like, company men is like a little too harsh. Yeah. But like, listen, if someone wanted to pay me, uh, I don't know, tenfold what my normal, what I'm normally getting paid to just do my same job, but just slightly adjacent to what I'm doing already. Yeah, I'm going to do yeah. that. Yeah, I'm going to love it. Everyone's going to call me a sellout, and I'm going to be like, yes, I am. Well, there's (laughs) a reason why sellouts exist, right? I mean, you always think, man, you know, we'd never sell out. We're like, we've got integrity. We're like this band that would never sell out, right? (laughs) Dude, somebody comes by with that checkbook, and they're like, yo, you get to keep doing what you're doing right now, only – now you don't have to worry about health insurance. Like when you invariably need rehab, you're not going to have to worry about where that's where the money's coming from for that. And it's like, uh, I, I don't know. I think everybody's got a price. I think Martin Scorsese has a price. You don't think MCU could like walk up to him and be like, Hey, how much, how many zeros is it going to take for us to get you to change your tune? You want to direct the next Avengers? And I think there's a point where he would, I mean, he'd probably say no, to, to way more money than than you or I ever would. But there's a point where you'd get him and you'd say, he'd say, well, fuck it. Like I got kids and grandkids. Like this is gonna, I'm going to put my great, great grandkids through college th- with this amount of money. So fuck. Yeah. Well, they're and who says he wouldn't have a cool idea for some yeah. weird MCU property. Yeah. Because I know it was like floated around for a while that Quentin Tarantino was yeah. going to uh, direct uh, some kind of like dark mirror, black mirror, uh, Star Trek film, and I that would, would be great. I would put everything I have to fund that, and it's not much, but I'd give him yeah. everything. I would, I would, I would, I would kick in a dollar twenty-five <laughs> to that GoFundMe. The, you mentioned Quentin Tarantino twice, and I think he's a, an important guy to mention as someone who 
Um, started making films quite a while ago now, but when he did start, it was late 80s, early 90s, and he was kind of the next wave of, like, this guy is the new Martin Scorsese coming up. He's another guy who, and I don't think that that's a terrible way to, uh, a, a terrible analogy for for Tarantino, because he um, he's another guy with a lot of artistic in, in, integrity in that he doesn't necessarily make decisions that are going to get him paid more. He makes the movies he wants to make. Quentin Tarantino could make, he could say yes to a Marvel movie. He could say yes to a Star Trek. He could say yes to a studio film where the studio would have a lot of control and oversight over him, but he'd get a huge payday, but he decided, fuck it. I want to make the movies that I want to make. I want to make the movies that I want to see. And fortunately for him, those movies were very interesting to other people too. That's another case of the cream rising to the top because Quentin Tarantino in the 1980s was just, he early eighties, mid eighties, he's just working in a video shop and no one's heard this guy's fucking name and it could easily have gone the other way for him. But he did get lucky with, with some, um, uh, film festivals and getting his film kind of out there. That's sort of what you did before YouTube, right? You'd, you'd make your film yeah. if you could afford to produce the thing. And then if you had a little money left over, you'd try to send it to different film festivals to get it in front of people's, uh, eyes so that they, they would then pay to distribute it widely and, you'd get it in film in, in the um the movie theaters or whatever. So I think Quentin Tarantino is another guy to mention. I would love to see him or Martin Scorsese as artists pick up like a franchise of films and do something completely unique with something that's this long running. MCU would be great. Star Trek, I would love it if Tarantino would do that. I would love to see them uh either one of them take a stab at maybe more Tarantino than Scorsese. Take a stab at a 007 movie. You know, just do something wild. Yeah. I just realized, you know, Martin Scorsese, the movie I would like him to remake, actually, is Unbreakable. I would love to see Martin Scorsese's version of that. Even yeah. use Bruce Willis now. I don't care. Yeah. Like, I, I think he would do something amazing with that as well. So, yeah. I used to I call know. that movie unbearable for the longest time. I was How like, unbreakable. You? More like unbearable. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Push that guy down the well, fucking stairs already. And Scorsese would make it bearable. Yeah, I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. So uh, a couple other things. I mean, we're, we've already been going an hour. This is going to be a gargantuan episode. I don't want to take up too much of your time this evening. But um, I wanted to ask you just a couple more things. First thing is you had a little bit of trepidation about this film. And I don't know how much of this was you, like, just joking and 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 humor. But, like, you had a little trepidation about this film based around its portrayals of Italian-Americans. But... Um, you know, in defense, I think you realized that it was made by an Italian American. So it's, it's sort of like looking at do the right thing and thinking like, it's not a racist film. It's made by a, a, a black filmmaker. So he's not, he's not making a film about people that he's like, he's a part of the group that he's portraying. So it's, it's an honest and authentic portrayal. It's not a caricature done by someone else who just thinks this is how we all look or something like that. Or this is how we all talk. So like having seen the film now, is there, is there like a hint of that left over for you? Do you feel like, well, as an Italian American, I don't like to be associated with this kind of thing. And this painted us with a broad brush or, or, or something like that. Or is it something that you think is kind of like, it's fair that he made this movie because it's about who it's about. And, and as an Italian American, I don't feel like I associate too closely with that kind of uh, individual that was in this movie. All right. First of all, you have said Italian American too many times. Yeah, I do not identify as Italian American. I hate no, I, 
<laughs> listen, I, I am Italian, yes. Yeah. And I will say, I yes, it was half joke, half like I've always had to roll my eyes uh, my whole life when people are like, your name is what? How Italian yeah. are you? Hey, pizza. On a scale of one to olive oil, how fucking olive oil are you? Yeah, no, I I I get that. <laughs> you know, shaped like a boot. That's how Italian I am. Uh, so no, like it's funny. It was funny to watch this movie because I do think that there were, you know, we can only imagine that there were things that were over the top because uh none of these people and even Henry Hill himself, like you can't believe everything this guy says. So yeah. like so uh, you know, who knows how outlandish some of these characters were but it was funny to see like uh where a lot of like stereotypes down the road showed up yeah because they were like mocking this movie but in a way that like was way more over the top and uh it was just it was interesting it was an interesting thing to look back at as someone because as you said i am not much younger than you but i am 38 and watching, you know, TV and movies my whole life. And now, like, watching this movie, I'm like, oh, there were a lot of, like, uh, shortcuts yeah. that, like, cartoons or movies or whatever took yeah. by, like, kind of doing an impression of things that happened in this film. Joe Pesci and especially. Just, They're like, what do you mean I'm funny? Like a clown? Like I amuse you? What the exactly. fuck do you like, mean I'm funny? But, like, even cartoons would do that. And it's like uh, you'd watch, like, um, I don't know, whatever cartoon, you know, in the 90s. Like Dude, the Simpsons, I, I I can almost guarantee you Bart Simpson said 100%. something like that. <laughs> well, say, yeah, Simpsons. I mean, and I, I guess adults watch Simpsons because I was I was going to say like who gets the reference? Like if you're making like a Looney Tunes cartoon or whatever, like Muppet Babies or whatever, and like I'm I'm a clown, I amuse you, but it's got to be the parent that's sitting there with the three year old, right? It's got to be like Masha and the well, Bear. It's like crazy. It's like Space Jam, the first Space Jam. They had like a straight up homage to Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah. Whatever they like opened up the trunk and there's uh, Elmer Fudd and whoever else it was. And they're like Jules and what's his face. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. But uh, so I, I, I guess um, what I'm really I guess what I'm really saying is that uh, you don't feel like the film is necessarily offensive to people based on like racial or no. ethnic stereotypes or anything like that. It helped that the guy who made the film is actually Italian, I think. I truly don't care about any of that. Like yeah. the the like the thing that I personally being an Italian person that I've always despised about myself and about other people that are Italian is how proud they are of being Italian. Yeah. Like relax already. We get it. Like yeah. you're just different white, chill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just olive oil white dude come on chill out i got a buddy of mine and you know he's pretty italian as well his last name is kafaro if that helps kafaro yeah i mean he does his his uh family they do the fucking the like the fishes and shit on christmas eve like seven the 12 fishes, fishes. Yeah. yeah whatever the fuck it is the 17 fishes i don't know what it is but they do everything i mean they're and he's like talking about bruschetta and he's like bruschetta and i'm like what the fuck are you? You're like fourth generation American. And like all of a sudden we start talking about a food product that hails from your native land of your great, great, great grandfather. And you got a fucking, all of a sudden you talk one fucking Italian word. Yeah. I'm like, you fucking failed Spanish in freshman year of college. I know it. Cause I was there. You son of a bitch. Don't fucking come over to me. Like you fucking 
majored in Italian, like bruschetta, or the gabagool, you know, like it, it turns into like salami. I'm like, why do you got to say it like that? It's just fucking salami, hey. asshole. Salami. Mozzarella. But- <laughs> I got my I have my street cred because I just found out within the past like six months that I I am like second or third generation or something. So basically, I qualify for dual citizenship. Oh shit! Uh, yeah, you gotta get to that. Italy. So we've kind of sort of been looking into that a little I bit. Would fucking just, sh- it would be yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I would hard look into that because then you'd be like, "Hey, don't fucking talk that way about my people. I'm fucking Italian citizen. I can show you my fucking passport." You piece of shit. So okay, like I'm, 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 I'm glad you feel that way about the film. It's really just assholes that are like, "Hey, how Italian are you? Super Italian? Do you know that yeah, guy?" No, the, movies, the movies have never been the problem, other than the fact that everybody's allowed to watch them. Yeah, <laughs> and then everybody's allowed to pretend like, like, "Hey, I'm this Italian guy from uh, Bruschetta, Gabagool, and shit like that," because they watch Sopranos too much. Well, and also they watch guys like Joe Pesci and they're like, yeah, that's a tough guy. No, he's not like, don't get it twisted. Like the guy he's portraying is tough. Joe Pesci is not actually tough. You could punch Joe Pesci in the face and he would just fall over. Well, he's 84 okay. right like, now. So yeah, he totally the, would fall over at, at, at the time. You could punch him at his 47 year old fittest and he would fall over and be like, Aye. well, I mean, like, look, like 10 year old Kevin McAllister's ass did it in home alone. So, I mean, I, that came out like the same year too. I think, I think home alone and Goodfellas were like out in the theaters at the same time for like a small amount of overlap. So like you could go from <laughs> watching him fucking stab a guy in a trunk to death with a knife he borrowed from his mom and fully intends to return to her next thanksgiving she's going to be using that to cut the fucking thanksgiving turkey and it was inside billy bats some six months earlier and then you could leave that movie and you could watch him get his head lit on fire by a blowtorch and trip on micro machines in the same fucking day not only does that mean he's not a tough guy in real life but also this guy is a genius. Can I just say Joe Pesci For sure. fucking <laughs> lifetime achievement award? Cause he can go from being, and look, you know, he's not a tough guy in real life. He's a fucking actor, but at the same time, I, he sells me on, on, I mean, the acting in the film is impeccable. Let me just say everything in Goodfellas, I'm here for all the acting. Even the yeah. bad acting is good acting. The gumas of uh, Henry Hill, his mistresses. That's some of the Dude, worst acting I've seen, but. Sam Jackson, like I was yeah. shocked to see him, and I was also like, "Oh, you weren't good yet, huh?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just, you know, it, it's like they weren't going to give him that many lines. I mean, Pulp Fiction. What did Pulp Fiction come out two years later? Maybe was Pulp Fiction like ninety uh, two, ninety three? Something sounds like right. that. By the 93? way, Home Alone and Goodfellas did come out in the same year. <laughs> yeah, they totally did. They totally did. That was not a joke, but but somebody God thought it was a joke apparently. But um. Yeah, I think the acting in Goodfellas, I don't have a single complaint with. I think, you know, maybe a little bit of typecasting on some of those characters because they went on to play similar characters in in the future. And and Ray Liotta didn't do a ton. He didn't make a ton of other really huge movies after that. But he's been used a lot more lately. But um, what about... What about the some of the dialogue in the film? Was there like my my I guess my second and my last question to you, so that we end on like a high note, reminisce about the film. What was like one of your favorite scenes or favorite pieces of dialogue that was really like fuck? I love this part. So I don't know it like verbatim or anything, but like when he first, like that whole scene where he first started dating 
his uh, later to be wife mm-hmm. and just was not into it at all. Um, and went, what was it? Was it after the first or the second date where he, they end up leaving and she shows up. Like he's somewhere else. The date's yeah. over. She shows up to where he's at, slaps him in the face, uh, goes crazy on him. Yeah. And uh, he's like that, like that. I, I know that's not dialogue, but like, her yelling at him and his reaction to that, yeah. like that to me, that was like, that was like the top of the hill acting that Ray Liotta was doing. Cause yeah. you could see in his face. Cause like you saw her slap him. And I think every man was like, Oh, she is about to get put down into the dirt. Yeah. And then you just see him with that smirk on his face. Like, Oh, you are something after all, look at this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like she got his attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was and the second date. He stood her up for the second date. He didn't even show up. That's so what it was. She had to go kick his ass. I mean, she had to go like give him. But he was like, you know, he he kind of slides out of. He's like, I thought you you weren't having fun the first time. I thought you were gonna stand me up and blah blah blah. And so he's like, let me make it up to you. And she like agrees, and they're like flirting with each other a lot at the beginning. There, that was a good scene. I like a similar scene. It's the scene where. Uh, it's the scene where Joe Pesci is trying to get him to go out on the first date. And I've actually got the dialogue. I'm going to play this. <laughs> what you brought, Diane? I was telling you about a side. Trying to bang this girl for a fucking month now. The only thing is she won't go out with me alone, you know? She don't want to go out with Italians alone. She's prejudiced against Italians. I fucking believe that. In this day and age, what the fuck is this world coming to? <laughs> I can't believe this. Prejudice against a Jew brought. Prejudice against Italians. Anyway, she won't go out with me alone unless her girlfriend comes with us. So I figure you come along and go out with her girlfriend. See, I knew it. I'm trying to bang this fucking broad. You want to help me out? It's, 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 I don't know. It's Angel. What? She's fucking beautiful. That fucking family, they live in the five towns there. You know, these you boys got a lot of money. Maybe the family owns the whole fucking block. You'll have to wind up with a big fucking score. You motherfucker. I know fuck. See? You with your fucking mouth. I fucking, I fucking love, I love Joe Pesci so much in that movie. He's like, can you believe that in this day and age? Fucking Jew, like the the way he delivers the line, it's not like it's it's not like can you believe this Jew broad doesn't want to date an Italian? It's not like he's giving the the line like he's just like, oh my god. It's like, can you believe this day and age? It's a fucking Jew brush. It's a Jew brush. She doesn't want to date an Italian. She's prejudiced against Italian. Like the way he's like motor mouthing it and the words are so like scrunched up. And it's just a part I love it. He's like, can you believe in this day and age, prejudice against Italians? Can you believe a Jew brought of all people's prejudice against Italians? Like he's talking till he's out of air. Like he just keeps going. And when he's like, he doesn't stop to take a breath. It's just, I love that. I love that whole scene because they're arguing back and forth. And it's part of like, like I said, they they have this charm to them. Like these, these terrible, they're terrible people. But here they're having this like really kind of buddy, buddy, like it, it feels like a buddy movie for half a second. They're arguing with each other, like a like old married couple sort of. He's like, "See, I knew like you were gonna." Brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's it's like this really kind of charming interpersonal moment. He's like, "I've been trying to bang this broad for a month," and it's like they're not good people. He's just literally all he wants to do is bang this girl, and he wants his friend to go out with him to to help make it happen. But the way they argue with each other is charming, and they, like that's a good example of like what brings me in. It's like, I'm, I love the little argument that they have. I mean, he turns into a murderous bastard later, but it's like, so 
cute almost this conversation that they're having and even though it's not i mean i think calling someone a jew broad is actually quite offensive i don't think you should i think that's the best way to go about uh saying it uh i think they prefer jewess uh, although i'll con- <laughs> i'll consult my i'll consult my rabbi my local rabbi first and then the other line i like this is one of robert de niro's i'll play this one for you now because i almost played it a second ago congratulations here's your graduation I thought you'd be mad. Man, I'm not mad. I'm proud of you. You took your first pinch like a man, and you learned the two greatest things in life. What? Never ride on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut. Of course, that is important because it serves as foreshadowing for the eventual end of the film. It bookends, it sets up this parallel. This is the thing you're not supposed to do. It's the gravest sin against the Italian mafia. He does it at the end of the film, and it's his only way to survive because they were going to kill him otherwise. And um, I also love Robert De Niro's delivery in the line because he's kind of like leaning in. He's like, you've learned the two greatest things. Mad at you? I'm not mad at you. I'm proud of you. You learned the two greatest things in life. I like how he says it's the two greatest things. It's not the most important things. It's not the most important lessons. You learned two greatest things in life. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. And I love leaning into people at times and being like, two greatest things in life. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. I love using that one out of context. And people are like, the fuck are you even talking about? Every now and then you'll you'll get somebody who knows because they've seen Goodfellas a bunch. Like, oh shit, yeah, I love that movie. And I like the the what happens right after that too, because they walk into the hallway and everyone yeah. is there. To be like, you're here, you did it. We did don't it. have to, to kill you. Aren't you happy about that? Yeah. Like, cause that's, I feel like that's what that was is like, this, whether you knew it or not, was your test and yeah. you passed with flying colors. So we're all here to congratulate you. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, if you ratted on us, then we never would have talked to you. They might not have killed him, but they never would have talked. They wouldn't have let him in deeper, right? They would never have brought him more into the gang and given him more responsibilities and, and more money and stuff like that. So, it very much was a task that he passed. And, and it's funny, they celebrate it like it's a kind of a graduation to these people. Yeah. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're a man now. It's like if you were Jewish, you'd have your bar mitzvah. And now you are a man within this community. But it's, he's very much a similar age as if, if he were Jewish, he'd be having his bar mitzvah. But instead, he gets pinched. And to this community, it's like, now you're a man, you've come of age, you've been pinched, you know, and you, you took it like a man. So you prove that you're a man and you're one of us. And, and it is an important scene. I think I, the great thing about the movie is it's filled with important scenes that are, that, that really mean something for the narrative, but then they're also so either hilarious or just, just great to watch that. It's like, I love watching the the guy deliver the lines, even though it's like foreshadowing, it's not clunky or boring like i gotta sit through this thing because it's going to be important later in the movie and it's exposition but let's hurry up and get to the boobies and the shooting uh in this movie it's like even that setup to set up what's going to be the end of foreshadow the end of the film it's still like so entertaining because de niro is like you learn the two greatest things in life you know he's like whispering in his well, ear and t- again it's not really it wasn't really the dialogue of it but at the end like from the moment that he is like super strung out and starts noticing the helicopters yeah. up until from that moment up until they it, it's found out that those helicopters were for sure following him. Yeah. Like that whole the whole how tense that all was about like him just how 
crazy he was going. And every time he would leave, he'd be looking up and looking out and looking through a window. And everything was about, you know, uh, trying to keep himself concealed. And it was just like super tense. Like it, uh, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't remember one word that was said during that, but I remember being like, Oh yeah. Like I, I really did think I'm like, Oh, you're just crazy right now. And you just see a helicopter. And then they popped him. And I was like, son of like, there's no way to have really known because he yeah. was so gone that, you know, he had just as good a chance of being wrong as he was of being right. Yeah. So and the paranoia yeah. was real, but, but in, in his case, like it was well-founded Correct. paranoia, but you know, like that life, I mean, they're always looking over their shoulder and that's what it's supposed to tell you is like, you don't, you don't want to choose this life. It's not, I know a lot of people watch films like Goodfellas, maybe more so The Godfather, but but they watch films like this and definitely Scarface. Scarface was is one of the movies that people watch and they just like idolize and idealize that lifestyle. And it's like, did you guys see the movie? Did you guys see the end where he gets shot to death by a shotgun and they leave his corpse lying face down in the water? Because I think the end of that movie is trying to tell you something about this lifestyle, but people still like, I want a desk with a pile of cocaine. I remember I dated a girl in, in, uh, in, in high school. In high school, keep this in mind, we're like 17. And I dated this girl briefly, and she's like, I love that movie, Scarface. She's like, I want to get a desk, and I want to put a huge pile of cocaine, and I want to just stick my head in it like, like, like uh, Scarface because I love cocaine. I'm like, you're 17. I think that's when I knew I had to get out. I was like, okay, this is, I have gotten in way over my head with a person who loves cocaine. And I had no idea when we first went to the very first movie together that she was going to be like, I wish Scarface were a documentary that I could just stick my head in a pile of cocaine. But Goodfellas is, is maybe less so, but I think it's still because people enjoy the movie so much and the characters are so charismatic that I think oftentimes they they just give it this surface viewing where it's like, I want this to be my life. Like I want to be well, friends with the boss and do all this cool shit. And they don't realize the that, paranoia and the they don't read the the end part uh, correctly. Well, and that's why I think that uh, even though I know they're not considered cinema, because that was something else that <laughs> Scorsese said, but uh, TV, some TV shows like Vic Mackey, especially, mm-hmm. and Walter White, like you, if you saw the movie of them, you might idealize those two guys in a way that was not intended, but getting to see, especially like with Walter White, you know, him go from this like mild mannered, you know, chemistry teacher all the way to, uh, you know, fucking murder, straight up murder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you see him go full evil and they say, this is a bad guy. He shouldn't be here and he's not here anymore. We made him go away. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, I mean, I, I think Martin Scorsese definitely needs to slow his role on television because, you know, when he was a youngster, even when he was first starting out in the industry, I mean, you look at television of the 70s and 80s, it was episodic. Nobody had nobody had TiVos to record shit and nobody had streaming services. There was no internet. So the TV se- uh, seasons were 24 episodes long. And if you missed an episode chances were pretty good that you were not going to catch that until they showed like a rerun over the summer. So it was going to be months and, and your best bet was to tape it or have somebody tape it for you if you were going to be out. But that wasn't the, the, the life of a, of somebody who was addicted to a TV show in the eighties. It was like, you had to unplug your phones when the show was on because there was no pause button. 
And we take that for granted these days that you could just be watching The Witcher. And if somebody calls or like your toddler wakes up, you just push the pause button, you go up, take care of business, and you could start again from where you were. But um, I think for a long time, the television industry specifically suffered because of that. It, it suffered because um, you never knew if somebody was going to have catch the last episode. So you couldn't, you couldn't tell this really tight narrative. And Sopranos was where that started to shift. Sopranos was the first show that said, fuck this 24 episode season. We're going to do 12 episodes. We're going to do half of that, but they're going to be tight. We're going to tell a really tight story. And if you miss an episode, you need to watch the episode before you watch the next one, or you're going to be lost. You're not going to understand what's going on. And they, they said, why spend all the money on 24? Let's take the money that, that it costs us to make 24 episodes and, and spend that on 12 and really make it cinematic quality because that was about the time where the internet was blowing up and people started having TiVos and you could actually pause TV. And I remember a few years after that, early 2000s, 03, 04, you could get on demand, you know, whatever cable service you had, whatever channels you had, there was like an on demand. You could navigate using the guide buttons on your TV. And it wasn't a fuck of a lot different than what streaming services are today, where there's all this on demand content it sort of preceded that a little bit and you could catch up on Sopranos. So if you miss Sopranos Sunday night, you could watch it sometime during the week on demand before the next episode. So the technology really enabled uh, TV broadcasts to become much more cinematic. So I think Scorsese definitely he's, he's wrong if he wants to bucket all of television in this kind of trashy realm. I mean, say what you want about the bachelor, or, or like America's Top Model. That's not cinema. I'm with him there. But Breaking Bad is absolutely cinema. I don't think just because it's episodic doesn't mean that it's not cinematic as well. Because it's it's just to me, it's just as artistically and creatively valid as Goodfellas or or some of the other stuff that we've talked about tonight. Tarantino's shit. I mean, I think if I think if if TV had been what it is now, back when Scorsese and Tarantino were getting started, there's a solid chance they would have made television programming instead of going straight well, into film. Well, you're looking at two different skills. Like you're looking at Martin Scorsese, who can look at Henry Hill's book or life or whatever he based the screenplay on and distill it down into two and a half hours or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is taking his book and being like, Oh, I can expand this into like a legit, like four seasons of like six to eight episodes uh, about everything from the start of his childhood, you know, beginning with the mob all the way up to, you know, him ratting on them. Yeah. Like those are just two, in my mind, those are just two different skills. They're two different muscles that that you know different yeah. directors and writers can flex. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a reason why Goodfellas is like almost three hours. It's he needs the time to tell the story, and I think that's something that's great about shows like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos is that they're able to like create these uh, very satisfying narrative arcs that. Um, you don't, I mean, it just takes more time to do. You need three, four seasons times 12 episodes per times an hour per episode to tell these stories and to weave in the supporting characters and the, and the other cast. And so, you know, there are certain stories that I don't think would work very well as films, even three hour films. And then there are probably certain stories that I don't think would work very well as television uh, shows just because drawing them out, stretching them out over multiple seasons to make it a lucrative venture for the, 
the television station or the streaming company is just, you know, it's, it would, it would like water the whole thing down. Um, yeah. Like stranger things I think would work better as a movie. And I, I think they like, they drew it out and they stretched yep. it out too much and they kind of watered it down and a little too much filler. Like, I think if you took that first season of stranger things, tightened it up, you could make a two and a half hour movie and it would be excellent. It would be really, really good. Maybe you could get a trilogy out of it, but, but you'd have to like tighten up. Like I watched the second season. It was weak. I didn't even watch the third season just cause I was like, man, I can see the trajectory. Like I'm probably going to like the third season less than I like the second season, which I like less than the first season. So I think a lot of shows are like that if they don't have the legs to go, uh, you know, three, four seasons times 12 episodes, sometimes it's better just make it a trilogy of films, make, make three, two hour films and it'll be six hours and it'd still be shorter than one season. Yeah. I don't know. We could, we could go down the rabbit hole on that because then there are the movies that should not, there are movies that should just be a movie. They shouldn't be a show. They yeah. shouldn't have a sequel. They shouldn't have an anything. And then, you know, before you know it, matrix resurrections is at your door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to, I still need to see that just out of morbid curiosity. I'll, I'll maybe after we wrap this, I'll have to like get your, your like thumbs up or thumbs down on that one. Cause it, 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 I know it has to be bad, but I, I'm also, I feel like after 15 years of no Matrix films, like uh, I got the rose-colored goggles on and I'm ready to be hurt again, you know? I don't know. Yeah, listen, you're not wrong, okay? That's what that's what I am willing to say right now is that I, as a unapologetic Matrix fan of all the Matrix movies, yeah. uh, even the second and third one, uh, I mean, the fourth one was what it was, but any more matrix that I get is good. So that's okay. what I'll say about that. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, do you have any final thoughts on Goodfellas before we put a pin in that bad boy? Are you glad that I forced you to watch it? Should I keep doing this to other people or should I just make this like a solo <laughs> show where I don't like, I don't try to force people to watch movies that they've never seen that they may not even be interested in seeing. No, you definitely should. And it's funny because I, I don't know who I even heard say it recently, but they were talking because Wolf of Wall Street was a Scorsese movie too, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. It makes so it makes so much sense now because I rem I like got chills of that movie while watching this one because yeah. Henry Hill and whoever uh, DiCaprio was playing, like those two guys. I, I refuse to believe that Leonardo DiCaprio did not watch Goodfellas at least once or twice during the have. filming of that movie. Had to have. Had to have. <laughs> and I mean, you know, uh, with the same director, he's also giving them notes on their performance and he's telling them about the type of character that he wants them to craft. So, you know, he's very much working with them on the performance. And you can tell, you can tell they're being directed by the same person. Uh, the same yeah. director is telling them like, this is the kind of portrayal I'm looking for. And this is the type of, of character that you're playing. And I love Wolf of Wall Street. I think Wolf of Wall Street is his best work since Goodfellas. I love Wolf of Wall Street. A lot of people, you know, they like to, I like departed. A lot of people love the departed. I don't think he should have won the Academy award for that. I think the reason they gave him the Academy award for the departed, he hadn't won an Academy award yet. They knew they should have given it to him ages ago, decades ago, even. And they just wanted to correct their mistake before he died and he was getting old and luckily he's still with us, but they were just like, look, we got to give it to him for the departed. Otherwise, what if he croaks in, in 08 and we never give him an Academy award. So they gave it to him, but I think they really should have a, they should have given it to him for Goodfellas, And then B they should have given to him again for Wolf of wall street, which he was nominated for, for best director for, I don't know who beat him that year. And, and that 
should tell you something that I don't know what was up against Wolf of Wall Street that year, but but they beat Wolf of Wall Street for best picture and best director, and they shouldn't have because Wolf of Wall Street is fucking incredible. It is a modern day classic. It's one of the few films that was made within the last what is it eight or so years? Five. It was probably made within the last what seven years or so that I just That's think is right. hands down a classic, and it's derivative of I mean, Goodfellas, that, but it's a classic. Yeah. Well, it was 2013, so it was a little while ago. Uh, what nine years ago now? Yeah, uh, that's that's what you should find next. Is, is if there is an adult who has not seen uh, Wolf of the Wall Wolf Street. of Wall Street, I would yeah. love to see their first thoughts on that. Like they had, listen, this is the criteria: person who's never seen the movie, you have to have seen the other ones, like Goodfellas. Yeah, uh, and then just have for some reason this one skipped you. Like I've seen all the Quentin Tarantino movies except for once upon a time in hollywood yeah. somehow i still have not seen that movie so <laughs> that's wild did i give you my voodoo login i think so okay so because i i have goodfellas on there so i think i gave it to you so you could watch goodfellas for free if you've still got it i've got once upon a time in hollywood check it out uh it's it's well, well worth watching and i mean you can watch it for nothing so <laughs> and it's on there waiting for you buddy <laughs> We need to. Yeah. All right. Well, I do appreciate your time yeah. this evening. Uh, I appreciate everybody else who has listened to this program. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'm ready to go pop in Goodfellas. I think I'm going to fall asleep watching Goodfellas tonight. And uh, hopefully some other listeners out there are like feeling nostalgic about that film too. Go check it out and let me know what you think. DJ, thank you very much for your time, sir. Perhaps Absolutely. we will meet again in the future. We will. Yeah, I'll find out another <laughs> movie that you haven't seen before. You can co-host with the with this show with me. It'll just be about movies that DJ hasn't seen that I have. There's a there is a, we mentioned a few tonight that I'm like oh I haven't seen that one or that one or that one. So yeah, uh, well maybe this maybe this experiment will continue on. I just need more irons in the fire. Like I need DJ off watching some movie while I also got Chris off watching some movie while I got my wife off watching some movie and then I can just like schedule them. You know, and then then it doesn't matter if there's like 14 years in between. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, listen, what was are, are we willing to say what the actual time was between recordings? I would if I knew, was, but it was it's been a while. Like my whole studio has moved. Minute. Yeah, it looks different. It looks great for anyone yeah. just listening. Yeah, it it's really it, it like it, <laughs> it moved across the whole room. I got a different table and it's it's uh, it's pretty wild. Like I hung up black curtains instead of that big trippy psychedelic thing I had behind me. It's been a minute. It had to have been like October, right? It looks very zen. Yeah, I don't know. It's just been. Listen, you know, life is hectic sometimes. Dude, you know, one hundred percent. You can't, <laughs> you can't watch a two and a half hour epic. And by the way, that was part of it too. I wanted to ha- carve out a bit of time where I could watch it uninterrupted. Yeah, because I feel like that's the way to watch. You know, if you're going to watch a movie, that's the way to do it. So that's what slows me down in my life now. It's like, I need to carve out time. I don't want it to be interrupted. And so that's like after the kid goes to sleep, except uh, now I'm tired. I'm not getting through a movie. I'm not going to make it. Or I got a podcast or if it's the semester, I got to study. I got, uh, I got to like uh, create a PowerPoint so I can do a presentation. Fuck it. I, I know exactly what you mean. And that's why I was trying my damn does not to put any kind of, like pressure on you. Like I didn't want to make you feel like an asshole. Cause it's like, dude, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I might have a hard time watching a movie for somebody just, or even with the best intentions, it's tough. 
Indeed. And that is why I appreciate you, sir. I'll say thank you again. Indeed. And indeed. And good night. Thank you, motherfuckers, for listening out there in Patreon land. All right, have a good night, sir. <laughs> See you, Jason. Later. I, I dislike how StreamYard does the automatic ducking. It kind of pisses me off. It makes Adam's internet sound better than mine on Creatures, which is like, could not be further from the truth. Like, we'll be talking before and after Creatures, and he'll like freeze for minutes on end and shit like that, and we'll like totally lose him. But then when Creatures starts, like as soon as he talks, it like ducks my channel under his, and it's very annoying. Uh, listen to me. You're, that might happen to you guys, but also you you will be dead frozen for minutes at a time. I heard that on one episode. I was dead frozen. I still blame Adam.